This week, Brian Bellendorf, the general manager for the Open Source Security Foundation, joins us for a discussion around open source software supply chain security. In the security news, get variable strikes again. Attackers could blow up your computer remotely. Escaping containers, null D references, and faulty evaluations. 31 new CPU vulnerabilities for AMD. A look into Chrome. Santa, not so secure, secure booting. And malware included. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. FlexTrack is the premier pen test reporting and collaboration platform, empowering your team to spend more time hacking and less time reporting. FlexTrack centralizes your data, streamlines tedious workflows, automates report building, and facilitates communication with stakeholders. To learn how you can achieve a 30% increase in efficiency and cut report cycles by up to 65%, head to securityweekly.com forward slash FlexTrack. Claim your free month of FlexTrack and get your copy of the Writing a Killer Penetration Test Report Guide today. And welcome to the show. But first, let me introduce you to a man who was told he'd never be cut out to be a mime. Must have been something he said. Mr. Paul Asadorian. Welcome, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. It's episode number 770, recorded on January 25th, 2023, right here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. Mr. Larry Pesce. Yeah. To my left. How's it going on? Same old, same old. Same old. Hey, do you know why uh, keyboards don't sleep? Why is that, Larry? They, they have two shifts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Mr. Josh Marpet is here with us. Josh, welcome. I, I, Larry, just, you can't beat Larry on the dad jokes. You just literally can't. I, I, I mean, Josh, do you know how many ants it takes to fill an apartment? No, how many? Ten ants. Oh! <laughs> what does the Pink Panther say when he steps on an ant? Mr. Sam Bound is here with us, Sam. Welcome. Good evening. I hope I can provide an alternative to these jokes. Yes. <laughs> we Ms. count on it. Mr. Tyler Robinson, who is my date to Schmookon, is here with us. Good to see you again. I'm glad you finally got home, dude. Yeah, that was an adventure. We'll we'll leave it at that. I saw you on. You were a good date. Yeah, thank you. You were too. And I, I like I saw him on Slack, and they're like, "Oh, he's still traveling." I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa wait, we shared an Uber to the airport, and I left him in like pretty good shape." Two right? days ago. Yeah, two days ago. <laughs> like, I mean, we had some drinks before we went to the airport, but we were coherent. We were on our way. We got the thing. I watched him walk in the airport, and then it all went to poo poo. Yeah, it's a long ways out here in the middle of nowhere. Yes. And there was snow in between you and that at was. home, wasn't there? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, for a little bit of uh, Tyler and Paul's take on ShmooCon, tune into the next segment. Join our Discord channel to chat with our host, hosts, ask questions, customize live stream alerts, and more by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Discord to get the invite. 
Brian Bellendorf has founded and led open source communities and initiatives for more than 30 years, first as a co-founder of the Apache Software Foundation, and later as a founding member of both the Open Source Initiative and the Mozilla Foundation. Today, Brian is the general manager for the Open Source Security Foundation and joins us to discuss raising the floor for software security. Brian, welcome. Thank you, guys. Nice. It's great to be here. It's nice to have you, Brian. How did you um? How did you get your start in like you didn't start in security necessarily? Probably more starting in in software and open source software. Is that where you have uh, spent your career? Yeah, I mean, um, my parents worked for IBM, so we always had like a, a, a one of the early PCs around the house on which I learned to program BASIC when I was like in second grade or something. But then like didn't do much of any programming in high school except for like running this DOS program called Fractent that draw frac draws fractals for you, that kind of cool stuff, and then using it for papers and the like. But I get to Berkeley in 1991, and everything is Unix and the command line and email and FTP sites and like and then this thing called Gopher kind of comes around, and you hear about this this browser called um, the uh, uh, Tim Berners Lee's original browser. Like Fire uh, Mosaic didn't yeah. even come about until '93 or so. And so, like in this fermenting kind of like bubbling stew, it was like fun to be a computer science student. But I was actually having more fun across the bay uh, from Berkeley in San Francisco when I started uh, interning at this new magazine called Wired. Got them set up online uh, uh, with the first, really one of the first non-academic web sites out there and the first one to carry ads so I'm I've been apologizing for that ever since um, <laughs> I, uh, putting the first ad banner online um, but uh, but yeah I, I've never been like a, uh, I mean I've been paid to write software but the world is much better off without my code trust me I've been much more of like um, a community organizer in a way or, or somebody who was really just focused on how how do devs work how do they pull code together into this preposterous kind of thing which is like let's build this together online and give it away for free that was certainly not like what people expected from the software industry in the early 90s and it still seems a little preposterous that it works at all but it does um, and I kind of fell into the security role that I have now about a year and a half ago I've been with the Linux Foundation for five years prior to this I was leading a blockchain initiative called Hyperledger which is about, about like the way that enterprises use distributed ledgers and distributed systems to to, to coordinate you know between uh, different companies and the like in a way that deals with the issue of trust but I kind of passed the baton on that um, after five years on that. And this project was uh, kind of converting from a free project to one that actually would have some resources to get some things done. So I, um, I said, how can I help? And they said, let's let's put you in as a, as a general manager for it and, and blow the doors off it. So I've been following those security for my whole career in this space because you really can't, you, you, it's not ethical to be writing software without thinking about the security ramifications of what you're doing, you know, for your end users and the like. Uh, so so these issues keep, keep bubbling up, even from the earliest days of Apache, even from, you know, the small little thing that you write that suddenly you wake up and 100,000 people are using or 100 million people. That um, happens you know, for sure, right? Yeah. Brian, Brian, what was your kind of first experiences with open source software? There must have been something special that you kind of led you down the path of working for uh, open source foundations and, and the like? Well, I, I, you know, as I mentioned in like high school, I, again, there's this kind of really, um, it was fascinating. I don't want to call it dumb, but it was a simple program that ran on DOS called Fractant that drew the Mandelbrot set, the Julia set, the, you know, like 300 different algorithms. And you could zoom in on different parts of that set and get it to color cycle. And it was like, 
a super fun way to see how like some very simple math routines turned into this enormous complexity and, and beauty. Um, and when it started up, like uh, I, uh, the, the, the splash screen was this scrolling list of credits, you know, thank you to the following contributors, this person, and here's their email address at Caltech, this person, their email address at Berkeley. And so this like recognition that the software you're using in front of you was built collaboratively for free, iteratively, like frequently, I mean, maybe it didn't, wasn't as impressive in 89 as it could have been, but that was the first piece of open source code I used. And then when I get to Berkeley in 91, and just start playing around with email and, and learning about how are these systems built. Look, it was like Sun hardware and HP hardware and other like people who built the hard the the the, the metal. But but there was the BSD Unix distribution. There was um, uh, DNS and Bind, right? You know that like uh, and and SendMail and SMTP. And it started to feel like the fabric of the internet. Put aside like the hardware and even like the operating system, the Unix operating systems. The fabric of the internet had been built by technologists working together. To share code. And again, it's kind of preposterous that it works at all, but then it's you kind of get to the realization, how could it have worked any other way? Of course, that's how we got to standardized email, standardized DNS, standardized web protocols eventually and the like. So so that was that was kind of my, my entree into it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting um, what you said, Brian, that you had the you know Suns and the HPs of the world. And oftentimes one of the first things we did was put open source software on them. If it did, I mean I'm sure it came with a certain percentage even back then. But we would install, like you said, DNS, and we'd use ISC Bind because it was open source, and that's what and that's what we would use. It was the reference implementation. It's how you mm -hmm. knew that you were um, doing the right thing, as you were using what everyone else was using. Sendmail. It was, you know, it wasn't the best piece of software, but it ran. It was a champ. It, wow, you're being um, really I, kind, Brian. <laughs> Yeah, it was um, um, no, it was just this sense of like, and 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 frankly, if there was a bug, that it would tend to get fixed because there are other people hitting that bug, or there was a community to go and ask, like, am I running this the right way? Is this behavior I'm seeing a bug, or am I just an idiot? Right? Um, and generally speaking, the communities around code at that time were pretty generous in terms of like being places to ask dumb questions, and that's I think still a hallmark of well-run open source projects is it's okay a little bit to be an idiot. Was it was it Linus that said? that with enough eyes all bugs are shallow or was that was that it was eric that, raymond it was eric raymond with right it. he called it linus's law mm -hmm. um but but i don't know that linus ever actually said it and he might even disagree um and and it was kind of said with this air of well of course there's enough eyeballs because look at how many users there are mm -hmm. but there's a little bit of you know just because you have a lot of users doesn't mean you have a lot of people looking at the code and so I've always had a complicated relationship with that quote. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's true as far as you can take aphorisms like that. But the, the big problem is we don't have enough eyeballs still per line of code. Right. Because well, there's so much with code. with it being the year of the Linux desktop, let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, every year for the last 30 have been the year of the Linux desktop. I, I, or I at least the I'm last sorry. 10. I couldn't resist. I apologize. Every Chromebook. I mean, Windows has been shipping with a copy of Linux inside of it for how many years now? Um, and and open source software too. I was like, I had this use case today where I'm like, I need to execute SSH on a Windows system. I'm like, oh, you just enable it as a package and it's there. I'm like, well, that's really cool, actually. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, now that or on like you know file server like if you have like a Synology box and NAS mm. NAS servers for example, I mean they all will let you SSH into them and have a command line. It's a little little bizarre. I, it, it, yeah, lots of interesting consumer hacks to get command lines on 
I don't know if there, anyone's done that on a Furby yet, but um, mm-hmm. I, I see people putting SSHD on televisions and things like smart yeah. TVs. And was all it that the, Fur- the Furby source? Someone was talking about, I think it was the Open Source Security Podcast was talking about the Furby source code was yep. out just, there. Just got leaked. Yeah, it got, or it just got leaked discovered. or released. I, yeah. It was discovered, let's put it that way. Oh, well, yeah, that happens too. <laughs> uh, but I want to go back to the, the eyeball thing for a moment. And like, If we were to spend the time when we write our software and I believe, Ron, you had a, a quote that it was 70 to 80% of code is open source in, in installed, pre-installed packages. If we were to start, re- everyone was starting to review every single line of code that you incorporated from other projects, like we wouldn't get any actual work done on our own software, right? Right. No, and you wouldn't be, there's no way you'd be able to do it for the same reason that when you turn on a light switch, you're not inspecting the cable, mm-hmm. the power cables going all the way back to the power station. Like in a modern society, we should have some reasonable expectations about how much vetting we have to do of the things that we depend upon, right? Um, and we should be able to have some assumptions and take some things for granted, like the solidity of the power uh, mm-hmm. uh, supply chain, right? You know. If the power grid but when those things are threatened then we've got to think about structures economic or policy structures or whatever that allow us to get back to being able to trust those kinds of those things those things we we can allow ourselves to take for granted um so i don't think the path is telling everyone you've got to read the source code of your dependencies i think the path is to go how do you arrive at a point in being able to uh, actually trust the code you're running what are the signals you should look for from the code that the teams who are building the code you're using and maybe even further upstream, right? Um, uh, to understand when you can make it, when you're making a decision about what code to use in your project, are you using code that is run by a team that takes security for granted, or, or I'm sorry, takes security seriously, uh, or others who um, are are a little more slapdash about it? But and do I we? Think that's key, I, one of the keys. To be more do we reach a point, Brian, where we trust our suppliers and what they create, or is it really just a verification? of that that would inspire more trust well it was ronald reagan who said trust but verify right, right. and um i think the best kinds of trust uh um uh spaces are those where you have agency where you're um, allowed to independently come up with your criteria for what you'll trust uh based on and open source kind of gives you that for free anyways because the code is available you don't really mm-hmm. have much of a means to independently evaluate the trust of a piece of proprietarily licensed code or or even a web service for that matter you don't know what is behind the scenes of just an api right um uh, but uh but arguably when you've, you know, you've when the code is available for uh, public uh, purposes, you can trust not just the authors, but you can trust others who can go in and scan that code, whether it's line by line or a formal third party audit or scanning tools or the like. And so a big part of what we're focusing on at the Open SSF is how do we systematically uh, try to look for objective signals of trustworthiness in the code that we use and use that as a way to try to identify those projects that everybody is using um, and everyone takes for granted and just don't get the kinds of resources that they need to proactively invest in the security that is is really earned or merited for the role that they play. I mean, you could call it, you know, how do we find the next log for shell, right? Or the yeah. next um, well, that, lead. That was my example too. And, you know, I think that you can use those signals to go, wow, there's only a thousand other people that have installed this app in the app store or this open source project on GitHub only has, you know, this has been around this long, has this many installs or whatever. And, you know, that's one level, but a lot of people were running log for J Brian, (laughs) like a lot. And I think the assumption is, well, 
since it's so popular, like it must be secure, and, and that that's not true. Well, and either. since it has Apache's Apache's name on it, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's kind of I mean, that's why we have brands in this world is a little bit as a proxy for trust, right? If you trust Apache X, you probably trust Apache Y, um, and so so I think I mean, there's lots of that we could go into about like the, some root cause analysis on the log for right. shell thing. There was actually the report that came out last year from the U.S. government, actually kind of this expert panel that the government pulled together. Uh, I, I, uh, called the Cyber Safety Review Board, who issued a basically a postmortem on the log for shell mm-hmm. uh, situation. Uh, it was funny. It was the, the group that pulled together was convened under the same uh, kind of regulatory framework that the National Transportation Safety Board uses to pull together review teams every time a plane crashes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, what was the root cause of that plane crash other than sudden loss of altitude? Well, <laughs> this is the same kind of group that pulled this together around log for j and and I mean they came up with with a myriad of different factors. It wasn't just the specific vulnerabilities in the code it was also how that team managed the disclosure process and the and the mm-hmm. remediation process uh, uh, that basically caught a lot of the industry off guard um, <laughs> happening over winter break last year too mm-hmm. it didn't help um, uh, but but you know none of the things that were found in it were incredibly novel right it was a combination of code that didn't check its inputs um, from user user contributed input right it just kind of blindly trusted it as it was writing it to a log um, co- another piece of code that parsed user contributed input without any sanity checks for format strings, mm-hmm. right? Um, so both of those are two things that you'll see lots of best practices documents, including a bunch of stuff we've published, say don't do, right? But but it did, all right. Um, and then called into this chunk of code that had been contributed 10 years prior, I want to say, maybe maybe uh, eight years or something, but this was the Jindy LDAP code that was brought in by by a well-meaning set of developers who kind of contributed and then got busy with other stuff and left and didn't really keep it maintained. And everyone else said, well, that code just, none of us are using it and no one's complained about it. So we'll just kind of, we'll keep shipping it. It works. Not, it works. Leave it alone. It works, right? <laughs> it was like a, kind of, kind of a, um, it was kind of don't, don't poke the bear, right? Um, but they also didn't have any reason to have to exercise that out of the system, right? Mm-hmm. You know, to like, like get that out or make that optional or, or anything like that. So um, it was a mix of these three things, each of one of which in retrospect looks obvious, but one of the things that they just never had the resources, those the developers working on it, which, and by the way, they were, none of them were like, like poor college students who, um, you know, uh, would have, would have avoided the bug if only they could have been paid for it, uh, paid to work on that mm-hmm. code. All of them were working for companies that used that and lots of other modules. Uh, and so there wasn't like an economic crisis here, but to do a proper third-party code review on code as substantial as Log4j um, probably costs in the order of fifty to eighty thousand dollars mm-hmm. to do like a first pass to find the obvious things like the ones I mentioned, or to highlight here's a bunch of code you haven't touched in a while. Yeah, it's pretty complicated. You might want to really reconsider whether you leave this chainsaw in the middle of this, you know, dinner cutlery set because <laughs> yeah. you know it, it's powerful, but it's kind of complicated. Um, and so there wasn't really that fifty to eighty grand to do a third-party code review. No one independently had that in their back pocket. No one said, let's let's fundraise around this. Um, and I mean, there are other projects that are able to pay for that kind of work. Um, I, I, you know, uh, but, but that was just something that, again, this kind of scratch your own itch nature of open source uh, didn't really... I, I uh, didn't really r- raise it to anybody's uh, attention that it was it was worth kind of doing at this point, and that's something that should just be done regularly, not just once. Mm. So, do you, do you think, from an open source standpoint, we're always going to be 
a reactive culture or do you think we can get to the point where we're proactive with, with all the libraries and dependencies and ability for those libraries to cause you know, security issues used across multiple projects? Like, Can we ever get to that point leveraging things like AI, ML, um, dynamic and static code review, automated uh, pipeline reviews? Do you think that is a capability or are we really trying to just cut down on the number of vulnerabilities that are disclosed through open source? Well, we'd certainly like to uh, uh, cut down on the possibilities of future blog for shell incidents, right? We'd like to have some sort of baseline of quality, at least for the most commonly used open source packages and set, you know, maybe it's even a little bit of culture change about, uh, I, you know, what are the expectations of open source software um, and the default base of security? I think actually, if anything, people do trust open source code, perhaps they even trust it more than it's deserved. <laughs> um, and that the better run projects have well deserved that that reputation, but there's a lot of stuff out there that is simply coasting on it, and that opens these kind of vulnerabilities for us. So the open SSF, I'd say the work that we're doing kind of falls into a couple different buckets. One of them is around measurement. How do you come up with objective measures for the quality of the security quality of code? And that doesn't mean, you know, for the bugs you can find, that means for the likelihood that there are unfound vulnerabilities lingering in this code um, or, or other weaknesses. So there's a project called Security Scorecards that is underneath the OpenSSF. This is a collection of 100 different or so different heuristics that you can apply to um, a GitHub repo and when you scan it to look for the kinds of things that security teams take seriously or other indications that the security team is um, uh, or that this development team is uh, 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 you know knows their chops, right? Everything from are you using fuzz testing and the testing uh, scripts uh, to are you pinning your dependencies? So um, you know, uh, some other dependency being automatically upgraded, you know, to, uh, to, to do something malicious doesn't affect you, those sorts of things. Um, uh, so those security core cards create essentially a credit score for open source projects. And that's been run against a million different repos. And you can go to securityscorecards.dev to see the results of that work. Um, I, there are other things you could do. You could collect together information about when was the last time there was a third party code review of, of a given package uh, or the maintainers have the maintainers taken courses on uh, on security training. Um, some of that is hard to get algorithmically at this point. Um, it's something that maybe we could uh, address, uh, make it easier to query projects based on that. But but we've got to be able to measure that kind of risk before we know whether we're making any sort of difference with the kinds of things that we'd like to do next. And the next thing to do is specific interventions to help uh, those projects that don't score as well on those metrics, right? Uh, so uh, things like helping staff up a security team in something uh, in like the Python Software Foundation or the Rust Foundation or otherwise, um, helping think about the adoption of um, SigStore, which is for signing artifacts through a software supply chain. There are um, proactive steps that projects at the small level, at the single GitHub repo level, or even at the level of foundations like Python or Apache or whomever, things they could do to proactively make the results of their communities work uh, more secure by default. And so the second category of things are standards and um, uh, uh, software like SigStore uh, and um, other things that we're doing that if they were adopted by more open source projects could actually, uh, I think, have an impact. And then the third is what I'd call capacity building. Um, and it ranges from 
training of devs on how do you avoid the kind of common pitfalls in security when it comes to writing code. So we've got uh, some courseware up on the Linux Foundation's training uh, uh, website that's about 20 hours of content to help avoid. I mean, if the Log4j devs had, had seen that, they might have avoided at least one of those kind of three different different vulnerabilities that when combined led to the log for shell um, to simple guides on how to like get started on making your project more secure or how to evaluate open source code to see what is more secure. But then a really big thing that we're doing through kind of a, a side project of the open SSF called Alpha Omega is um, two things actually one investing into open source foundations to help them build their security practices through direct grants. We've made about $2 million in grants last year to, again, to Python, to Node.js, um, to jQuery, to Eclipse, uh, to the Rust Foundation, uh, to uh, um, help them all basically up-level their security practices as a way to demonstrate the value of that uh, and hopefully uh, get uh, a few years out, get their own stakeholders to pay for that kind of work, but just to get them over the hump of adopting some, some different practices and principles and the like. Um, and then the second major thing Alpha Omega is doing is trying to system automatically scan the top 10,000 open source projects mm. to look for new vulnerabilities and go and solve those at scale. Um, uh, things like, well, if this thing affected Log4j or if this thing is an old bug that keeps reoccurring, how do you systematically go and, and, and try to eliminate that bug um, uh, across thousands of projects at once? Brian, one of the interesting things is that in when we talk about the security of <clears throat> commercial software, we often say, oh, it ended up that way because they wanted to ship the product and they want to ship the product because they want to sell the product in order to make money. So there's immense pressure on developers to get the code shipped. Therefore, they caught corners and it ends up insecure. I feel like open source does not have as much of that pressure. Maybe in some projects, none of that pressure. Yet we still end up with bugs. So is this like a moot point? <laughs> Can we just... Oh, I think I, I, I think if any any team, whether you are talking about uh, a corporate team that ships code with known defects or or just with like without doing a degree degree of scrutiny that they should for defects, if they ship it out to their user base and and put the burden on their users of um, dealing with 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 crap. You know, for, first off, they're likely not to be in business for too long. Um, secondly, I, I, the uh, um, no, that's just, I mean, if you could know about that as an end user ahead of time, you would probably uh, be smart to avoid the products of a team like that. And well-run open source projects take that seriously because they know that their reputation is at stake. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I think the Log4j devs can tell you that, you know, they're incredibly stressed while they were responding to this yeah. crisis, partly because they knew that they had the reputation of Apache that they were kind of trying to defend there, that they were trying to, to, to preserve um, uh, and, and that people's trust in Apache projects or even trust in open source could be negatively affected by a bungled kind of response to all this. Or if, if it came out that it was just, you know, uh, a whole, way too many stupid mistakes in the code that would affect their reputation long term. So, so anytime I hear, hey, we didn't have time because we had to ship it as an excuse, it's just like, well, you kind of don't care about your either your, your users or your own future uh, at that point. Um, not to be too harsh, right? Uh, but uh, um, the I think I think I think we're done with the move fast and break things era in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, congratulations, you succeeded. Everything's broken now. Let's, um, <laughs> let's uh, fix it. Yeah. Oh wait, that, that was supposed to go the other way, wasn't it? <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> You've moved fast. You broken things. Congrats. Now let's um, clean up and 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 do something more, something for real. 
it was Brian Martin that, uh, not Brian Martin, sorry, Bob Martin from Mitre that came on and talked about how open source software is like a rock. And you put the rock down, anyone can come up and they can pick up the rock. You think it's more like a head of lettuce. Explain that. <laughs> that is really good. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to bring up that metaphor. So um, this has like been something I've what is it actually said for a while, even, even long before I was uh, um, in the role I'm in now. Um, software is a perishable good. Software is not like a static, uh, uh, um, I mean, we think of like dependencies and libraries and it's great we're able to stand on the shoulders of giants and write awesome things because we, there's millions of lines of code underneath us. That's great, it's an illusion. Um, this, this stuff de decomposes over time. Not only does it suffer from, uh, uh, you know, people finding vulnerabilities in code bases, I don't care. Actually, there's, there's one developer out there who I, I swear has written defect-free code and that's Dan Bernstein. Mm -hmm. um, but, but everyone else, like their, their software, I, if it's 100 lines of code, I bet there's three or four lingering vulnerabilities in it. Um, whether they're exploitable or not or meaningful, I don't know. But, but like code, uh, people discover these bugs in code, right? And that, the more more time you give it, the longer that happens. Furthermore, people find bugs in underlying dependencies. And dependencies sometimes, not only do they get taken off the internet, so you might not be able to rebuild, um, I, I, you know, they, they, they shift and the priorities of their own developers shift too. And so, you know, we're used to, in an accounting frame of mind, depreciating things like laptops, right? Mm -hmm. you're, if you're a business, you buy a laptop, you depreciate it over three years to zero because you assume that in three years, or maybe it's five, um, there's like standards in, uh, you know, in accounting for this. At, at year five, that laptop is basically worthless um, uh, uh, as an asset, as an asset of the company that you couldn't go and sell that for more than $100 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and we should, not only should we depreciate the amount of money that we spend building code as an organization, if you spend 100 grand on bespoke development to build that CRM system, um, great, but uh, or, or whatever tool, depreciate that over three years so that you're not marking it as an asset. But we should go below zero on that. We should, we should say, okay, by year four, you are now one third underwater, and that is a liability on your books rather than an asset. The whole big point here is we don't have a great way of expressing to the accounting side of a company, to the financial side, to the pointy-haired bosses, like um, software quickly moves from the asset side of the ledger to the liability side mm -hmm. of the ledger. Um, uh, and even when it's completely static, even probably even worse when it's completely static. And so finding ways to explain to the financial types the, the, the cost of technical debt, but also the value of updating frequently, um, uh, of updating dependencies, updating you know, I, I, the, the operating systems you're running on, even if you don't think you're vulnerable to the fixes that those, those updates are for, there's just not only good hygiene that comes from it, but but I think on first principle, you should you should update if you can do it safely. But I think I think that's how a lot of folks get in trouble with what we call legacy software and how it's a thorn in the side of the security teams, you know, around the world. And that's because they it's not it's hygiene, it's care and feeding, right? It's it's taking care of a pet or like you said, food, like Whatever it is, you have to take. If you just ignore it, it's going to get really, really bad, and you're going to incur more. We call it technical debt, right? I like the analogies better than just saying the words technical debt. You have to keep. You have to tell your management, and I think it's what we struggle with, Brian, is telling our management, like, it's great, we created this awesome software, but we still have to dedicate resources to keeping this software yeah. alive. Well, and hygiene. I mean. 
you should you should feel comfortable using open source software that comes with a support contract, right? But there's if you're an end user organization, you're a bank, you're you're uh, uh, any kind of company that isn't in the business of providing support for this chaotic bundle of bits that comes from random places. If you're pulling those chaotic bundles of bits from random places straight off of GitHub, your developers, right, and working them into your apps, there is this standard of care you should apply, um, and it's it's captured well by uh, the I. I this thing I've heard some people say, which is that free software, it's not free as in beer. It's not even free as in speech. It's free as in puppy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yes. like you're given yes. this, this puppy that for free, that's great. But now you've, now you're responsible for it. Right. And again, the good news is there's a lot of other people you can work with and, and leverage and, and you fix the bug once and everybody benefits, right? You improve the docs once and everybody benefits. So we get this incredible economy of scale, but it only works uh, when people recognize they've got that role to play small or large. Um, and uh, um, actually the big news in the last few years has been getting government to realize that they they mm-hmm. need to play a role like that commensurate to their use of this software, um, not just as a some downstream recipient of it all. I hate it when my open source library pees on the floor or chews my couch. <laughs> That metaphor only goes so far. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Say that again. He said when you get open source software, it's, it's like someone gave you a free puppy. Okay. And so I said, I, I hate it when it pees on the floor or chews on the couch. Like like Log4J or yep. OpenSSL or Apache Tomcat. I mean, you say Log4J Apa- took a massive Tom- crap Tomcat's on the floor, had, let's Tomcat's be had issues, Brian. But I think that it's because people run older versions of Tomcat like they literally doing the thing that we're talking about and advising not to do is they take Tomcat and they don't update it because it got way better as major versions were released, correct? The number of enterprises who are bragging about the fact that we're not vulnerable to log4j for the log for shell breach because that's uh, that affects log4j version two and we are safely back on log4j one. <laughs> um, you know, no, ignoring no. the fact that there had not been any even security updates for log4j one for five years at that point. Um, no, there's a false economy to skipping these updates. And maybe as devs or maybe as packagers or whatever, we could be doing a better job in making upgrades more painless. I know that there's a whole lot of people who like doing major API shifts at every um, you know minor minor version rev. But um, that's that's if you if you can make that less painful for your end users, you'd be doing God's work because the more we can get people updating frequently, the better. Well, but I think that's a. Uh kind of like almost like a give and take, right? The longer you wait to do an update, the more technical debt you incur and the more difficult a time it's going to be, much like I am <clears throat> with my firewall at home. I've waited too long now. And now you're like going back through the docs going, wait, I'm 2.1 and I got to go to 2.6. So now I have to read the, how do I go from 2.1 to 2.2 caveats? then from 2.3 and so on and so forth. Like I've just made a lot more work for myself had you just kept up with the the updates. And I, I, I think that's a huge part of the answer, Brian, no? It is. It's also having a team that understands resiliency as a first principle. Um, I mean, remember when people first, uh, when they first introduced Chaos Monkey, the the kind yep. of testing tools that that would randomly take down parts of your infrastructure to test that. Are you really as multi-homed as you, as you claim to be, right? 
Fascinating, brilliant, because far too often as architects, you know, there's the temptation to go, here's the one big database, here's the gateway everything goes through, and you think you're providing efficiency of scale, but you're creating tremendous um, uh, 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 fragility in the in the ecosystem. And so if you've architected things right, you stage your upgrades, you test them out, okay, we'll upgrade 10% of the machines to the new version of Ubuntu or whatever, and you roll that out and you measure, and it's painless because you've been able to, to engineer for resiliency from the beginning. Mm. Brian, you mentioned SIGStore previously. For those that aren't familiar, what is it and why do I want to use it as an open source developer? SIGStore is um, actually it's software and a service uh, and, and a protocol um, uh, kind of all wrapped into one, but it's for signing artifacts through the software supply chain. When you pull a module off of NPM, it claims to come from a GitHub repo X, right? Um, but there's actually no rigorous connection between that claim and reality. Uh, it could be that somebody has opened a, um, you know, has jumped ahead of the developers and opened an NPM package. We rely too much on right? namespace, right? And typo yeah. squatting results. Right, right. Um, but uh, but also things like, you know, if, if you do have stolen credentials and somebody slips in an update mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, uh, you know, other other things that are where, you know, we take for granted that uh, uh, the object that if you access some object over HTTPS, well, then it's probably the right thing or, or it's secure enough. Um, and, uh, you know, PGP does get used at the tail end of a lot of these distribution mechanisms, like when you're actually doing the apt get or, or signatures, like when you pull things down from, you know, uh, different distribution points. But but through the supply chain, there isn't really like a systematic way to go. Am I sure that I'm pulling together all the bits that I expect um, and that they haven't been frobbed in some way? And so uh, getting everybody, every developer to sign all the releases with PGP was kind of considered a non-starter just for usability reasons. Um, but also this recognition that managing long-lived identities is kind of hard to do. Mm -hmm. But if you have instead a a, a public ledger that you, um, uh, 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 when you create a release and you sign it, you put those signatures in that ledger, uh, and then that's available for anybody to be able to consult as they're running their CI/CD process um, uh, to check those signatures. That's a way to allow you to issue short-lived keys, uh, so developers can basically grab them as they need them, sign a release, and then and then not have to worry about keeping that private key around Brian, forever. Brian, is it signing uh, that the? Like, that sounds like blockchain, right? No, it's well, sort of, but not really. <laughs> Um, but it, it does use a distributed ledger. It's not blockchain or mining or anything like that or a cryptocurrency, but it is um, it is a way of distributing out um, uh, something. I, I, it's more akin to the way that certificate transparency works. Yeah. It actually yeah. uses the same same underlying infrastructure for that. But Brian, um, do they but, sign the the commits or does one single developer sign off on the release or are you validating all the developers with with SigStore? Uh, developers sign the releases, so so the the binaries that flow through and get assembled and, and that kind of thing. So okay. it's not on the commit, and more mm -hmm. than one developer can sign a release. Mm -hmm. So better than the signature that I trust on the .deb package that comes down through Ubuntu's repos. That's not as good as a level of check, right? That's I mean, validating that's the where it came true. from, right? Was I mean, that's like I said, it's there for the last mile, but it's um, uh, which is getting things from like an Ubuntu repo. But devs, you know, are pulling things from a lot of different places. So, um, yeah, it's intended to try to be pervasive through the um, through this through the developer chains of, of lots of different ways that people are building code and assembling them. I got you. And it's meant to be easy to set up for developers to 
avoid the process where developers have to, like you said, manage their own private keys and such. Right. That's awesome. Interesting. Um, where do we want to go next? Sorry, I just I had a mental blank. Um, we talked about log for j. We talked I, about I was yes. I was curious how this how this kind of next iteration of kind of the S bomb and governments where they're going to require a, a valid S bomb. How does that kind of play into the the whole ecosystem of open source and commercial entities leveraging open source as well as open source projects with inside of uh, enterprises or enterprises that do work with the government or the government themselves? So I, I, I guess I don't need to provi you know, provide too much of a background on S-bombs for, for your audience, but you know, I, I liken it to um, like, you know, the, when you started to see requirements to put labels on food about the ingredients in food, like a bottle of ketchup, yep. um, you know, <clears throat> what's inside that bottle of ketchup turns out to be pretty important if you're somebody who's allergic to the kind of thing that's a common food additive, um, uh, you want to know that it's not in this bottle of ketchup, ketchup you're about to buy, that kind of thing. And um, the same kind of thing applies to software, right? And arguably, one of the things that made remediating the log for shell uh, uh, incident a year ago was that very few organizations kind of knew what concretely what software they had. And um, you can buy some expensive tools that scan your infrastructure to tell you, oh, it looks like you're using this. But Frankly, that's the kind of data you should be able to get from your own uh, build chains yourself, from your uh, from your own kind of endpoints, the stuff you're building on top of, and then from your own devs uh, for the stuff that they build. Um, and so SBOMs have been uh, presented as a solution to this. And specifically, uh, I, the one that we've, we've used a lot at the Linux Foundation and been behind the development of is called SPDX, which actually started as a tool for finding, um, for doing license conformance so that, you know, if you're using GPL components, and you're using, you know, Apache license components and others, you're combining them in the right way and you're not doing things you're not supposed to be doing, like purely from a legal and compliance point of view. Turns out that you can attach other metadata to that process and uh, that includes things like listing every file that was included in the compile of, of that binary object or the like, because log4j didn't exist as log4j.jar on, you know, the, in the class paths of all these apps. Sometimes it was compiled into other jar files, right? So, so you need some way of kind of documenting that. Um, the problem has been the tooling to develop that has been awkward. It's not been something that's been turned on by default in most tool chains. Um, it's not something that there's a great standardized way uh, to consume those. And there's not even great tools uh, that um, once you have all that data can do something interesting and useful with it. But all that is changing. There are now commercial sure. tools that look for S-bombs and will give you information about it. Um, uh, there's better scripting for that. Uh, and we funded a lot of work to try to get that built into the kinds of tools that, that you know, predominantly in Python actually, that are used in the CI/CD uh, workflows in, you know, in a lot of different places. So it's no surprise that in the same reason it took government, you know, mandate to require that ketchup bottles be labeled with ingredients, um, you know, to make that like an expectation consumers could have of every object they bought in a supermarket, um, that government policy would be relevant here, right? Um, I, I, it's It's been kind of slow to get this kind of thing picked up by industry by itself because it is extra work and sometimes it can be a question like, what's the extra value from that work? Um, just when you're pushing software out to people and you're sprinting to deadlines and trying to get features in and that kind of thing, it feels like like an extra checkbox rather than something that actually provides differentiated value. Um, so, uh, so government mandates on that applying initially to stuff that the government 
buys that they pay for it makes a lot of sense as a way to bend uh, industry in the right direction in the same way that like the U.S. Postal Office Service buying, you know, 100,000 vehicle electric vehicles um, to try to encourage more EVs uh, being being manufactured makes a lot of sense, too. Um, uh, and and I think there's some safety and health critical industries, things like medical devices, where um, uh, they're, they're, you're going to see SBOM start to be a mandate as well. I doubt you'd ever see it as a mandate across all of software uh, or all of open source software, um, uh, simply because, like, where do you attach that authority to? Uh, it's something that the European Union is uh, as banding about in this um, not exactly well considered um, cyber resiliency act that is floating now uh, amongst the European Parliament. Uh, but I, I, you know, it, I, I think there's a lot of value to be delivered, but we've got to make it easier for uh, the SBOMs to be generated as a normal, ordinary part of the software development process um, and make that for the same reason you have readme.txts or license.txts um, that our expectations are that those are at the top of every repo or at the top level of every tarball or anything like that. By the same token, um, the tools that we use to build, you know, uh, all uh, to compile and to build these binaries and things, should be outputting SBOMs and inputting the the SBOMs from dependencies by default. Mm. And we've got to push this upstream rather than leave it as like something done at the at the the tail end of the supply chain. I if guess, we do I that, guess my, then we're more ubiquitous. I yeah. guess my concern is when we talk about like labeling things. Mine's more the cyanide and the Tylenol. I, I don't know if that was like a, a was it a real thing. <clears throat> In any case, yeah, it was tampering after the fact. It was though. tampering. At, so I'm worried about in in open source and particularly Linux, is whoever's packaging my software, is the one that that could be the weakest link in the supply chain, right? I actually have a higher degree of trust that, given everything you've said and and others working in a similar space that have come on the show um, this month, that the developers stand a much better chance, I think, of applying security. Then say, if you compare them directly to the package maintainers, you know, we've got Snap, we've got Flatpak, we've got package repos, we've got App Image, we've got Arch Linux, uh, Arch Linux um, repositories, you know, any yeah. mix in the language, it was the NPM. I'm more worried about the packager. How do we trust, is, does SigStore apply to the, the packager or is that still they're taking software that's already been signed, putting it in a package and they can put a script in there that steals my keystrokes? You know, in some ways, I think what you're calling Packager um, is actually a little bit more like an app store, um, like yeah, a little bit no, more right. like yep. um, the, the distribution, final distribution point, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. um, uh, NPM, PyPy, there are things that are kind of language and tool chain specific like that. Uh, and then um, the operating system level app stores, basically. Um, and I think I, I think there's a difference between the two. I think I think you know assembling a bunch of dependencies into building Kubernetes or building a, an, an app. Um, some of those will come from those kinds of places, and you'll certainly install them by default that way when you're kind of using them more as an end user. But there's a certain amount of packaging that goes on upstream, anyways, for for certain projects, right? And a certain amount of assemblage into a, a tarball. Um, and so so I think SigStore matters pervasively across that chain. Um, mm -hmm. Six uh, uh, SigStore and SBOMs matter. Mm -hmm. 
basically across that chain. What happens at the last mile, though, is going to, I think, get interesting because there'll be pressures, I think, some of them government pressures, some of them customer pressures to cause those last mile repositories to be more opinionated and to mm -hmm. be more of like the guardian of the quality and security. Um, and I think there's both opportunities and risks with that kind of evolution. Yeah. The yeah. opportunity is, yeah, I think those places should promote the more secure packages based on the objective stuff we've talked about, based on things like are the uh, developers who are uploading those packages, um, are they doing using multi-factor auth, for example? This is something that NPM rolled out for their top 200 packages, which they got some pushback on from the devs because two-factor auth is kind of a right. pain in the ass. And, but I don't a, want to dissuade people from yeah. from helping out with it. Like right, I was having a, too many, yeah, I was having a conversation yeah. with one of our mutual friends that makes software, and I'm like, dude, you make it for Arch and stuff? He's like, no, like not yet. And I'm like, oh, I just want to help with that. And then I'm like, wow, that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> and if what you're saying, Brian, like we need to have more maybe some rules and guidelines and um, legislation on that to go like anyone can't just package anything and, and call it a day. Now I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do it. And then we kind of defeat the freedom of open source and the, the one of the most beautiful aspects of open source is that we can all help and contribute, right? Somehow we've got to break this tie, I think, between like the last mile distributors and file formats. Like, like I get why um, uh, snaps are different from from Debian, from from other kinds of packages. Like, right. there are semantic differences between. It's, these, and it's but, highly annoying, by um, the way, all the choices. I mean, it's highly annoying all the choices we have, but also I respect it from an open source sense that we should have freedom of choices. So come at it from from like the other end of the spectrum, which is the Apple App Store. Yeah. Right. So there's some great things and awful things about that model, mm -hmm. right? The great things are consumers can can outsource some of their pr trust and risk to Apple to like you know be that that big line of defense against people who would write malicious apps. But obviously it's monopoly, and obviously that means you know the app developers lose thirty percent of their revenue uh, right. just to the platform. And we have to play and by their even, rules. I can't get an app in the app store that replaces iMessage as my default text message. Like it doesn't allow me to change my default text messaging app. All sorts of restrictions that might have been well considered in, a, in earlier days, but but even even governments are starting to ask Apple now, hey, you need to provide alternative app stores. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think there's a lot of good debate about how do you allow that kind of optionality, that, right. that the freedom of choice, without it becoming a, a, a chaotic free-for-all, right? <laughs> Accessible. And so I think, so I think we mean Android. Really should be, <laughs> yeah. would be a choice, right? So on, on Apple, um, uh, you've got Brew as like the open source mm -hmm. distribution kind of like platform, right? Well, in essence, that's kind of an app store. I, I, is, I, yeah. I would love to see two or three others that you could basically say, okay, I'm going to trust this group of people because I either I pay them a support contract or I know them or or whatever. And I'd like to be able to have that be my primary way of getting, getting packages and, and building on top of them. Um, but having that freedom of choice and that agency between different ones, but then have that not require building different packages for each of those, right? Like the technical yes. difference, it's because it's more of an editorial level of control that they're exercising rather than a technical differentiation. Um, uh, so that's, I don't know, if I, if, if, if I think we will see that space, the space in between the NPM and PyPies and Linux packagers um, and the App Store kind of like, it's a spectrum. And I think we'll see a lot of evolution of that over the next few years um, in ways that hopefully will be additive to security and additive to freedom of choice on lots of different platforms. Um, but uh, but it, they do play an important role in trying to lock down more of the open source um, uh, security picture. Sam? Yeah, I, I don't want to let the blockchain slide by 
there. Uh, and I want to say thank you for Hyperledger. I've been using it for years in my courses, and it's very good to demonstrate a sensible business case for the blockchain. And I wonder if you have any uh, speculation about where it's going. Is it going to fizzle out, <laughs> or is it going to become something people really use? So people are certainly using Hyper, Hyperledger technologies in stuff that is completely like behind the scenes and isn't like, here's an app you can download. Um, but from uh, supply chain traceability projects, predominantly in Asia, you know, and things, everything from diamonds to, to rice uh, uh, for digital identity initiatives in places, even like Canada uh, and the European Union and Africa um, uh, for central bank digital currency projects. I mean, it's 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 a distributed system for uh, uh, building apps and built and sharing data in a world where people don't trust each other. And it's hard to understand when you come from a place that you believe in the strong institutions that are provided. You believe in the U.S. court system. You believe in regulators. Um, but it, you know there are a lot of people who don't, and a lot of people don't believe in other countries' regulators and 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 systems of law and the like. And so encoding that into software into technology, if it works, would seem to have a lot of value. Uh, and I think Hyperledger, it's taken a while, but like it's got mature code now that is being used in production and shares a lot of DNA with this, the code that runs on the public cryptocurrency networks, right? Um, from smart contract infrastructure and, and languages to some of the same principles around consensus management. Um, but the cryptocurrency side of that space, you know, allowed itself to kind of get hijacked by the by the investor and speculator crowd, um, uh, and and you know, and kind of got entranced by it in a way that was not unlike Pets.com in 2000, with um, but substantially more economic uh, kind of damage at play. But I still have a sense that there is something to public blockchains, to, to um, which inevitably are kind of the cryptocurrency types uh, that are, if, if we can find the true utility that can be provided by them, uh, decentralized storage and decentralized compute and decentralized kind of data query seem to be, for me, the ones that are much more likely than DAOs and decentralized governance uh, I, or uh, structures tend to be. Um, um, and NFTs, I think, will come back. This concept of digital assets that are portable between systems is kind of a no-brainer that we should have them. We've just allowed that, that term and that technology and that whole sector to be kind of hijacked for a little while. So um, I, I'm not, I wouldn't write it off. I certainly follow things like the Web3 is going just great um, uh, blog that Molly White uh, publishes. And we should all be extremely skeptical about you know what sound like fantastic claims but it is a space that's still worth tracking in my opinion and and i think there is a, a bottoming out of the market that was necessary to flush out a lot of the the bad actors and bad ideas um but you know that's that's hardly the first time the tech industry has seen you know a massive wipeout followed by by something coming back so we'll see brian you well i'm still, glad I, to hear that thank you i see you're a star wars fan yeah. and you have r2d2 <laughs> back there C3PO2, oh, right. yeah. how, how different do you think Star Wars would have been if the Empire implemented non-standard data ports that R2-D2 couldn't interface with? <laughs> well, I think about that scene in Independence Day where they hacked the, oh, the, the alien, alien yeah. Yeah. Uh, over SSH or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, obviously the world could be very very different. Um, uh, so uh, before I do what I'm doing now, I, um, I started one of the first website design companies called Organic. Um, and we built uh, websites for like Harley and Levi's and Nike. And in 98, we built the website for the re-release of the Star Wars movies, mm -hmm. um, wow. like the new special effects or whatever. Um, and that was for Lucasfilm. And that was the first time there was like a website for Star Wars. It was like mm. starwars.com uh, or whatever. And in pitching the, the business, 
we had talked about um, organic because like Apache had started organic was one of the main kind of investors, you could say, in terms of my time and some other people's time to work on it. And so we'd actually talk about, hey, this is why you should trust us to build your website, because we know pretty deeply where the web is going from a technology point of view. Um, and, and and talked about, you know, we want to keep the web free from the encroachment of, um, you know, I, 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 Microsoft, which own 95 percent of the, of the um, mm-hmm. desktop. You know, we wanted to keep them from owning 95 percent of the web, that kind of thing. Um, and it to it being just a better better piece of software. Uh, so when they sent us back the um, approval notice, they faxed us. It was like a, it was literally a fax. Um, this mm-hmm. fax that was in the same font as the scrolling kind no. of intros uh, to uh, Star Wars movies. That was like you know the the the, the Rebel Alliance, uh, you know, in the form of the Apache Software Foundation, and uh, led by you know uh, Brian Skywalker or whatever, do forces against uh, you know uh, Darth uh, um, Darth Gates and yeah. the, uh, <laughs> Microsoft. You know, it was hilarious um but uh yeah that, that, did you uh, save did you um, save it do you still have that there. do you still have uh, the facts yeah it, it's it's buried in files somewhere i gotta i gotta um, scan it and put it up but yeah it's awesome that's, that's awesome. really awesome uh brian I mean, I mean, have, we're, we're not star wars nerds at all no yeah not at all right um <clears throat> brian i just have five questions left for you, you ready to play five questions with security weekly okay there is no right or wrong answer uh three words to describe yourself a very proud dad if you were a serial I, I have a daughter like the, my, my seven-year-old daughter is the center of my 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 world right now so that's awesome, that's awesome. Uh, bravo bravo well done sir if you were a serial killer what would be your weapon of choice a really bad sense of humor <laughs> <laughs> if you wrote a book about yourself what would the title be see, that's a recursive answer you see um, <laughs> yes. anyways um what was the if question? you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Oh, these are so personal. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> these are so personal. That's a great title for a book. It is. That's, it. That's, a, good, that's a good answer. <laughs> um, oh, man. Uh, I'm going to take this way too seriously. I, I don't know. Um, I, how to get really lucky in life and, and, and make sure that you pay it forward. What is your favorite hacker movie? War games. Choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead, fictional, or otherwise. Uh, two celebrities to be my parents. Uh, I don't think he'd be a very good dad, but Anthony Bourdain is certainly um, <laughs> somebody I, I respect and love and kind of see I mean, just like the way he gets involved in like the, the the local stories of the people making making the food that he's eating. Right. I mean, I like getting behind the local stories of the teams that are building the code that yeah. that uh, um, sits behind open source code. Um yeah, uh, I'll just leave it at one. There you go. Well, <laughs> you I mean, I mean, it could be. Do- it could be. I mean, <laughs> technically, it takes two to you, you have a child. Yeah, right? it could be, so it could be double uh, Anthony Bourdain. That's like, right. That's and totally I cool. I know I don't have to limit it to certain gender either. No, um, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I'd argue you, because it we because celebrity is very widely there, there's a very broad definition to that. Oh yeah, I, we like the loosest term of celebrity. I is mean, what we, your own parents could question. be considered celebrities right. in your own mind. I'd argue that um, now Old Yeller was a celebrity, so mm. I mean we we're equal opportunity employers here. <laughs> He's sticking with the one though. Yep, that's fine. fine, Brian. Thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. With that, we'll take a short break, come back, and talk about the security news. Stay tuned. 
Right now, everybody is talking about cryptocurrency, and the cybercriminals are hiding in the conversation. Cybercriminals use social engineering loaded with urgency and fear to successfully prey on your company, your employees, and your customers. Spear phishing is just one of 13 types of email threats. Barracuda has identified these 13 types and shows you how you can protect your company, your customers, and your reputation. Find out about the 13 email threat types and Barracuda email protection. Get your free ebook at securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening and watching our podcast. We want to ensure that we are creating the most relevant and useful content for our audience across the network. It's crucial to us that we are delivering to you more of what you want to hear and learn about. Please take a few minutes to complete our listener survey so that we can craft content based on your needs. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash survey to submit your feedback. And again, I had nothing to do with that survey. So if you don't like it, uh, don't email me. Email someone else. <laughs> or tell me and I'll forward it along. How about that? Wow, you're nice. I know, right? <laughs> hey, <clears throat> Tyler and I went to ShmooCon. And all you got was this lousy t-shirt. <clears throat> Wait, no, what? I didn't even get... Did you get a t-shirt? I didn't get a t-shirt. I got a moose. I got a stuffed, <laughs> I got a stuffed moose in a, in a mug. That, in, in a really nice toiletry bag. Like, I don't know. I was kind of... Actually, those were all three pretty nice gifts. I was... I mean, I gave the stuffed animal to my youngest son because uh, he's still into that kind of thing. And he you kept it. the tumbler for yourself. Oh, I totally kept the tumbler for myself and the toilet. I needed a new toiletry bag. The zipper was broken on my old one, and now I got a new one. Nice. And it was awesome. Got to love and the I conference to, swag is useful. <clears throat> the other yeah. bags, though, I my wife was proud of me. I was proud of myself. I, did you take those home, Tyler? Like I got the yeah. the bags with the Schmookon bags you with left, the swag. Yeah, I was like, no, nah, I don't. I, no, no, I have a house full of that stuff, and it just gets thrown out, and I have way too many bags. And I was like, see, I, Steve, I told my wife, like I didn't bring, I didn't bring home any bags with crap in it. Was there anything good in there? Wait. It was the same. It's the same. It's the the, the notebook, the the squishy thing, like maybe some mints. That's usually what you get, right? In the attendance. I don't know. Bag. I haven't even opened them yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, I just got home, so you know, yeah, you did. You're still, still in, in the suitcase. <clears throat> you had what a much you... longer commute home than I did. What happened, Tyler? Like seriously? Ah, uh, was... I, I was in an endless loop of I was not going to make the connection. They had one flight out of DC area to get to my connection airport and it was too tight because they kept delaying in dc so they would reschedule me the next day to try again and they kept delaying the next day so that's how tyler, I went, that. tyler went to the airport together because i was like <laughs> I'll, I'll go a little i was the one I, like i'd be a little early tyler was like probably right on time and so i was like well let me hurry and finish my two martinis my second <laughs> martini before we go to the airport <laughs> <laughs> and Tyler had a much worse time. I had another like Bloody Mary when I got to the airport, and a gin and tonic on the plane. <laughs> I took it's a only nap. a short flight. It is. You got a gin and tonic and a nap. And a nap. <laughs> gin and tonic. No, because the gin and to- there was going to be turbulence. Which oh, good idea. I was, have more alcohol. I was worried about because I had consumed a lot of alcoholic beverages before I got on the plane. I'm like, oh no. I'm like, I hope I don't like get plane sick. This could be really ugly. It should go on anything to drink before we take off. And I'm like, yeah, yes. <laughs> gin and tonic, please. <laughs> and then she's like, you have to finish that before we take off because 
we have turbulence. Obviously, I'm laying the cat out of the challenge bag accepted. That I flew first class because I I just I, I you're felt, old. I'm old. I'm old. I'm, so I'm like you know what? Even though it was a short flight, and I was like, all right, I down my gin and tonic, <laughs> and then and then I took a and then I took a nap. I, I woke up briefly as we were you know the oxygen mask were coming. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> woke up briefly, yeah, put I, my oxygen mask on, and then went back to sleep. <laughs> Second day, I randomly picked a city that was a big hub and made sure that I got on the plane after I had them pull my bag and found another place I could fly out of. And, and I, I feel bad. I yeah, I feel bad because Tyler had like the very opposite experience traveling home than than I did. But so. sh- to be fair, Shmoocon was amazing. Like this mm. year, Shmoocon feeling to kind of wrap it up. Like it was very much uh, very close to all the people you want to see. Very DerbyCon like where. It was kind of back to the same level of crowd. I felt like, yeah, I felt like the the community was back at this conference. And I mean, you guys know me really well. I'm not one to like get mushy about conferences all the time and stuff like that. But like, I I was kind of, um, I was emotional going into it. And like, I was emotional there and emotional. Like I was, I was like, wow, this is like blessed to be a part of it all. It it was, and, and I wasn't there, but I get the feel that it was very much, it's time for folks to come out of the woodwork a little bit yeah. and reconnect because we're at a much better place where we were. Yes. Two years, almost three years ago. <clears throat> yes. And everybody was doing that. That's, that was like, we had the lobby con going full swing. It was very much the, the I, I did not eat the Batman cereal. There was Batman cereal <laughs> from 19. Grifter, come on, man. Like that not, was the Batman worst cereal man. from 1989. Grifter breaks out Batman. I saw the box in the lobby. Did you, did you smell it? No, I, oh my I, God. I, I saw I, the box when he still had it in shrink wrap and there was like a plastic Batman on can, the front of it. And I just thought like, you know, people at the con, they're in lobby con. They put like, you know, cool, weird stuff on the table while they get their laptops out and they're hacking. I just thought it was like a, a decoration. And Tyler and I went out. Shout out to Paul Batista at, at Polarity. Right. So we went to the awesome restaurant, drank. Ton- that was the theme. Awesome restaurant. Tons of whiskey. <laughs> Same thing, second night. Awesome restaurant. Tons of whiskey. Batman um, cereal. And the Batman cereal came out, I think, while we were at the, the, the thing. Uh, Tyler, yeah. I, w- I wasn't there, but I can smell it. Mm-hmm. Like I know it, what it that smells. Smell. Oh, like, someone! It, right? It's horrible in '89. Yeah, yeah. same flavor. Just adds some like staleness and, and no. Yep. Someone said it was like eating the pages of a musty book in your grandparents' basement. Yep, I could totally see that. <laughs> Somebody said it was cardboard and sadness. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. Yep. <laughs> yep. Like we've ha- I've discovered stuff in our pantry that's been in there for way longer than it should have that has that flour or and stuff in it and that flour just goes rancid after yes. a while even if it's been baked and yep i can i can literally smell it i can taste it in the back of my throat I just a couple yep. more things about shmoocon um you know heidi and bruce and the whole shmoocon team did an amazing job uh running the conference uh, it felt very Bravo. very well run um also uh was it was her, was it mao the talk we we went to that was talking about the the Chinese underground system, yeah, mm, Mao so. Sui, yep, Mao Sui, that was that was a good talk, uh, and it's mentioned in this article, so I linked to it an article from CyberScoop on uh, Shmoocon. Um, yeah. Everyone had a Flipper Zero. That was the other thing, like except me, <laughs> I had Flipper Zero uh, Envy. I have I have, have one one's on the way. Yeah, I I'm oh hey, I ordered one so. I get to just, one just of the, bit the bullet and pay double. <laughs> I, I, I did. It wasn't quite double. It was pretty close. Um, so, 
Uh, my talk went really well, and <clears throat> the videos were posted. Wait, they are. So one of my coworkers sent me a video to my talk. Unless he was just trolling me and that was the Rickroll video because he didn't actually click on it, which <laughs> I wouldn't put that past my coworkers for sure. <laughs> At Eclipsium, love you, Nate. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure Nate sent me the, I mean, I, again, I didn't click on it. Um, but I was, they were like, oh yeah, we want to like promote that, Paul. And I'm like, you might want to watch it first. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> just throwing that out there. Like I, someone may or may not have put a whole, like, like a bottle of Weller bourbon, on stage right before and poured me a glass i'm like i would have been rude not to accept i'm sorry and that was the the weller special reserve right it was it was delicious and you know too. you know what's crazy and i drank more of it throughout my talk i, I worked it into my talk the, the the crazy part is you worked it well is that is nearly identical to pappy van winkle mm. It was, for, for, now you say that it was it was similar. It is it is nearly identical. It comes from the same distillery and yes. the same process. Yes. And I bought a seven hundred and fifty no a one point seven five liter oh, bottle of that. Seven hundred fifty dollars. And do you know how much it was for a one point seven five liter? That's double the size of a yeah. normal bottle you get. You know how much it was? Uh, hundred bucks. Thirty dollars. Wow. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's amazing for the price. Amazing. Sorry, to right. sorry to derail your schmoocon. No, stuff. It's okay. Anyway, what do we want to talk about next? Oh, we have news stories. I haven't even looked at them. I oh, I should. Let's talk about blowing stuff up. That's okay. always fun. All right. Yeah. So this, I have not read this entire paper. I have your story number. My story number eight. Um, I have talked to people that have validated this research. Multiple Ooh. people. That said, yes, this is an actual thing that it is totally possible that through a BMC, baseboard management controller, you right. can then interact with the PMBs, power management bus. And if you were so inclined, it sounded like some of the attacks were to vary the voltage on the board, kind of like the Aurora project, right? Like varying uh, power and voltage back and forth can mm -hmm. cause failure and affect physical change. So remotely gaining control of a BMC, <clears throat> I'm saying remotely, again, I didn't read the whole paper. I'm just, I'm assuming remotely gain control of a BMC. Remotely gaining control of a BMC is definitely possible. I've talked about this on the show in the past and warned everyone that you should update the firmware on your BMCs. And if you didn't listen to me, someone could break in through the BMC influence the PMB, the power management bus, and cause physical damage to your system. It's called PM fault, faulting and bricking server CPUs through management interfaces or a modern example of halt and catch fire. The other interesting thing that the title is not indicative of is it sounded like they also kind of had a, I want to say it was potentially a fault injection that allows you to bypass SGX enclaves. Which seems just like a thing that people do. Like SGX enclaves are always mm. being broken in some way. We've covered a lot of that in the past the past year or so. I, I love re reading through the, some of the other related work, uh, specifically the names around the software-based fault injection for some of the other attacks. Plundervolt, Voltpone, and Volt Jockey. Yes. And again, I haven't read the entire thing. It's a 
I've, I've skimmed some of it. So software-based fault injection, hardware-based fault injection. Oh, it's great. Uh, it's, it's a great read. Um, it's going to take me a while to digest this, but it looks like a great paper. Mm-hmm. But again, someone remotely gets into your server, right? And can cause physical damage. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. IPMI I squared C vulnerabilities. The paper is very, I had just scrolling oh. through it, man. It's, it's, I got to, this came in right before my talk and I haven't had a chance to, I did put a reference to it in my talk. Um, there's not much written about this paper. In fact, the one news article that was written about this paper was behind a paywall and it was super annoying and I removed it from the show notes entirely and I put a link to the actual paper in it. Awesome. So that's good stuff. Where else do we want to go? Um, well, while we're on hardware and stuff, AMD quietly lists 31 new CPU vulnerabilities. Now, what I found interesting about this article is and my day job work at Eclipsium has certainly uh, been instrumental into me now understanding when I read this stuff exactly what I think exactly is going on. So AMD has listed various AGESA revisions. And I want to say AG, what is it? Now I don't remember what it stands for. What is AG? <laughs> it's like their, their toolkit. AMD generic encapsulated software architecture. I'm using the word toolkit um, as a generic term to describe that, for example, if you were an OEM and you were bringing to market a computer and you wanted to include an AMD processor on it, that you would uh, purchase the processor and license the software to enable it. And the AMD would give you an AGESA. And what I say that was, AMD Generic Encapsulated Software Architecture is a procedure library developed by AMD used in platform to perform platform initialization, right? So the software that actually makes the processor work. You would then as an OEM customize that software, build all their software around it, customize your UEFI environment around it. AGSA code is used to build BIOS or UEFI code. There you go, it says that right in the article. And then the article says, however, the availability of new BIOS patches with new AGSA code will vary by vendor because each vendor has a slightly different or completely different hardware set of hardware and other firmware that has to be built into UEFI and UEFI has to be the AGSA code has to be built by uh, has to build your UEFI. So all of this is part of the supply chain that the OEM is using to build your hardware which means when there's a bug in a CPU, AMD has to release the fix. The OEM has to rebuild the UEFI. And I mean, potentially get more complicated than that. It may be that like AMI or inside has to rebuild the UEFI and then give that UEFI to someone like a Dell or HP Lenovo uh, framework, whatever it is. And then that vendor has to go to the end user and go, now here's your new firmware. And so you're talking about four levels, four levels of, of fixes that have to be constructed. That is, that is, did I say hmm. fourth? So go from uh, processor manufacturer to BIOS or UEFI uh, provider, perhaps to a motherboard provider like 
ASOS and then ASOS boards are put in Dell Lenovo HP. You know, I'm not picking on any one of them, just describing how the process, you know, works. Uh, the, the, like the last leg OEM that then goes, here's your computer. And by the way, if you need a BIOS update, you have to come back to us, but we rely on everyone upstream from us if there's a security vulnerability. And then it's like really up to the last leg provider to go, we're going to give you a BIOS update or not. Like MSI, in my case, for my other laptop is like, yeah, Paul, you're shit out of luck. Your BIOS is now more than two years old and there's no updates to it. If there's a vulnerability, if there has been a vulnerability, which is one of the things I mean to go back and look, it, you, I'm, I'm screwed. I can't really fix that myself because the code has to exist in UEFI. If like if it's a configuration thing, remember when Jesse was on, he was talking about how UEFI mm-hmm. in the boot process creates SMRAM. SMRAM has SMI handlers. Those SM handlers are called by other parts of UEFI to do things like change registers. So there could be that trace doesn't exist on the board or that SMI handler doesn't exist in the code. Therefore, if I call it, there's nothing to call, even though I'm calling it from like the outside of the the like UEFI code. That is so why. It, so it that's depends. A, a, so yeah, it depends. But that is a very simplistic way of saying why we have to rely on the supply chain even more so when we talk about lower level code like UEFI and firmware uh, than all the, when we talked about software supply chain with Brian earlier, oh, there's a library that has an issue. I can switch to a different library. I can rewrite that library. I can fix that library myself if I wanted to. Um, and that would be possible and probably much easier than trying to deal with AMD as patched a CPU vulnerability and it has to trickle all the way through. So, so wait, wait, let, let me, let me, let me throw something at you. So you've got, what was it? Three or four levels of, of manufacturers and vendors and such that have to reconstruct or, or use this code to build a patch for their, their piece of hardware, right? Yeah. So Josh, let me, and, uh, in the con, so your framework laptop, Intel, yeah, no, no, I get it, right? I get Intel it. provides wait, wait. CPU framework licenses the UEFI code from inside and puts mm-hmm. all it together. So my point is, is that what incentive or sanctions are there for any of these companies to do this? It's why or I not do this. It's one reason why I like Coreboot. I think people lean on Coreboot as, oh, it's going to be more secure. And I'm like, not necessarily. It might be more updatable. Well, that's that's my point. Right? Because yes. for each of these levels of companies to do this, it takes time, effort, like it's money. All right. So, oh, you mean that that BIOS that we put out three years ago, there's a vuln for it and we've got to go and rebuild. Like we've got to get guys to actually reread what we did, figure out what we did, get it back in their skulls, write a patch, get the patch deployed, you know, send it out to anybody that wants it. We don't care if you want it, but here it is like that takes time and money. And and so now you've got to build it unless you use chat GPT, of course, let's just be clear on this. But (laughs) I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at I'm looking at Sam. He's got his hood on now, so I'm waiting for his like Obi Obi Wan. Do you have words of wisdom? Like these are not the patches you're looking for. Well, I do have this one. You know, same kind of issue happens in my story number four, mm-hmm. where the real tech devices hundreds of millions of attacks against them, and the problem is they have vulnerabilities and they don't get patched for the same reason. The right. IoT device manufacturers do not have an incentive to put out the updated firmware. Correct. Real tech. You're probably making an Ethernet or Wi-Fi device that gets included inside of an IoT device. Right. So if 
Sam and Paul were going to make a IoT device, Sam and Paul's wireless router. We go, hey, Realtek, we want to we put your chip in there and you're going to license us some software. You're going to give us a binary blob and our kernel is going to have to depend on whatever binary blob you put in there and we're going to ship this thing and then there's going to be a vulnerability and real does Realtek go, hey, you can pay us more money to get updates? Well, why would happen? anybody update it? I'll just tell the customer to buy another one. Yeah. So Paul and Sam go, hey, you need Paul and Sam's IoT router version 2. That's right. <laughs> it's new. It's improved. We licensed the chip from Broadcom this time. So it's a completely different problem that's going to happen all yeah. over again. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. It's fun. That's why I drink. <laughs> um, so is anybody, I mean, this is actually an interesting question. Is anybody creating an inventory of every device <clears throat> that's out there with every piece of firmware that's in it and someone is naming and shaming the companies that don't update? Oh, we tried that once. <laughs> oh, do tell. Oh, do tell. Um, <clears throat> there used to be a website called securityfail.com. Yeah, it kept we getting hacked. Yeah. And then it kept, it kept getting hacked because people thought securityfail.com was an invitation to hack it. Like, oh, your site should fail at security. So they made sure it failed at security. And there were several hacking attempts. And then what did we do? We, we kept the domain, but we turned we, off the VPS provider. Yep. And never updated DNS. So that IP address got recycled to someone else so we're basically pointing to someone else's vps i believe was the issue and someone said oh look i can own securityfail.com and we're like oh yeah i think it's hacked all the time like good luck with that you may want to just go refresh get a new ip <laughs> oh no we ended up redirecting it after a while did we it redirects to grc.com forward slash security now oh, that's right we did we redirected it for a while <laughs> no yes. it's still it's still going there <clears throat> oh does it yep because i just does went it? there no no it, way yep securityfail.com redirects to grc.com forward slash security now.htm oh so we we updated the dns entry to something else yep after we realized it got recycled. Oh, yeah, yep. it does. After we realized oh, it got oh, yeah. recycled. How yeah. long ago was this out of curiosity? Oh, I know. We're old, Josh. Oh, like, 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 really, like, don't. Like, a de more than a decade ago. Like, almost as so old the as answer our children. Is nobody, so the answer is nobody is keeping track of all of the devices and all of the firmwares and all right. of the updates or lack thereof. And nobody is making this available to the public, engineers, security specialists, IT infrastructure people, so that they can easily look it up and determine whether, hey, no, we don't want to buy this device. You remember or that scene that from Jurassic Park? Where he's, you know, he's like, hey, look, firmware is vulnerable all over the place. And he's like, look, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody, nobody cares. cares, Josh. We can create that site and no one care. And we're like, yeah, we know firmware is vulnerable. Yep. I have data that I presented Shmukon. Firmware is vulnerable. Tyler was there. He remembers the slides. He's not in his head. Yes, firmware is vulnerable. Nobody cares. I shouldn't say no one. Yep. Most people don't care. You're, yeah, you're not making me happen. Yeah. Dress park meme. No one cares. No yeah. one cares. And and Josh, you you it, it it becomes an interesting problem. Like when when you speak of a project of, well, what are naming and shaming and putting these things out there and the notices like one, you start naming and shaming and then you open yourself up to lawsuits, especially if you're discovering new things like we know how the security community is or we know how the community is. It shouldn't be like that, but it is still like that from time to time. Um, the other one I think about thinking about my day job 
in the quantity of firmware images that we have acquired and analyzed and have as a matter of ground truth. 136,000? Way probably, more. You probably have more because you're doing IoT, so you have a lot more. We're closer to a million, if not more. And what percentage Jeez. of those have vulnerabilities? Oh, we got to compare notes. Uh, uh, that's a great question. It's probably mm. close to 99%. So I look. So, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing at this point, just based on some of my, my knowledge, that it's probably 99% yeah. based on the stuff that I have looked in the platform. And at a mil if, if we call it a million pieces of firmware, we've barely scratched the surface. Yeah. Bet so I between, look, okay. ma between manufacturers, models, versions, patches, you name it. I agree with you. A, you've barely scratched the surface, and B, not that we live in a litigious country, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> but that my point is, is it's not so much a, a name and shame. It's, it's hey, these are the firmwares we're aware of. Here's how old, how long it's been since their last update. That's it. Mm. Make your own decision. It, it's a risk informing thing. Yep. Again, no one cares. <laughs> Damn it! Damn it! I, I, and I won't. How say, do we get people? Why do you think Larry and I work in firmware security? I guess nobody cares. And I, and I don't. Damn it! We're going to change that. And I don't. I don't think it's nobody cares. No, most I, people. I think it's the average consumer doesn't care. Well, I mean, a lot of enterprises are still. I think. Yeah, I would all. Yeah, it should come. It should come to me in a more secure. I but I think enterprises are in general kind of like that with all. Um, suppliers that you get in that they expect some level of security when they get it. And what I'm trying to make everyone realize is that when it comes to especially firmware and other software that largely you could call it pre-installed for that purpose, like your uh, firmware, your kernel, drivers, like that's, that's stuff that's like below the surface as we mm -hmm. call it, right? Mm -hmm. That's below the surface. Typically, users are paying attention to and customizing the stuff after that, right? Yep. But if you look at what's before that, we kind of, we don't want to care about it. We want to, it just, someone else's problem, it comes to us secure. Yep. And that is totally not the case. That is just like every other piece of software. It has vulnerabilities mm -hmm. and it has ones that you know about today. And it has ones that tomorrow are going to come out that you didn't know about such as MSI's configuration that they pushed out in their UEFI firmware that oh. silently disables secure boot. So oh. in secure boot, you can, there's a oh, configuration. Look, it's legal counsel on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Image execution policy um, right. is a setting that's like, what should secure boot do if it comes across something that is in a revocation list, one of those options is allow execute or always execute. I'm not sure that there, what the difference is <laughs> between that. Uh, there is also yeah. query user, but what they Tails did was- I win, heads you lose? Yeah. I mean like- Yeah, but so what um, MSI did was they shipped a UV version that's actually over a year ago or something, I think they said. Uh, or I'm not sure when, but for a certain period of time, you apply this UFI update. It doesn't disable secure boot. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mess up your revocation list. It simply flips the option that says, if software is loading during boot that 
matches something on the DBX or revocation list, just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Sam, I mean, these are attacks yeah. that my coworkers uh, pointed out years ago. Uh, it's actually, I think, 2013 that Yuri and Alex and others presented on like a similar kind of attack for Windows 8 on secure boot. But fast forward to MSI, you don't need that. The OEM <laughs> we'll made a mistake it. and enabled this configuration option. Yeah. So just when you, even if it if it comes from the OEM in its initial state as everything's good with secure boot and you configure it, you could take on an update that could break shit, which makes it hard to tell people you should update your firmware. You should not trust your firmware. You should validate your firmware and then update your firmware. And then, Sa like, Sam, that's, that's Sam's shaking work. his head wildly. It sounds like he's got something to say. Well, just, I mean, I don't know how well people can validate their firmware anyway, but the other thing I'm thinking is this is just developers. When developing something, they turn off the security features, which just get in the way, and then they forget to turn them back on when they ship it. The same thing happens for a lot of mobile apps. They turn off HTTPS certificate verification, and they forget to turn it back on later. Correct. Well, same thing with with authentication. Um, I loved the Gary McGraw interview that we aired on our week off. And one reason I selected that interview is Gary was describing the difference between a bug and a flaw, right? Like a bug is buffer overflow, like, you know, cross-site scripting. A flaw is I forgot to authenticate the users. <laughs> right? This is more of the I forgot to authenticate the users kind of, kind of bug. So Yeah, and there's another one that keeps happening over and over again is they have an API and one of the methods they forget to check the authentication. Yes, or the same thing on IoT devices. In fact, I had a story in there about that as well. Uh, not taking over a dead IoT company. Uh, that, I one had, I that one I want to I know you want to talk about. I want to talk about that one too. That one's freaking cool. But there's, a, there's another one too that is very tangential to this is the, the malware standards. Where is, where's my Netcom story? Oh, I saw it. It's in there, right? Oh, I did. 18. Uh, Netcom unauthenticated remote code execution. <clears throat> if you read through this one, there's... Was this... Yes. This is this one's awesome because as uh, Tyler and I were talking about this weekend actually quite a bit, one of the things... We talked about a lot of things. I'm not going to tell everything. Everyone, everything Tyler and I talked about because it's top secret. But one thing we did talk about is how to get a good copy of your spy flash or firmware. Something near and dear to Larry's heart, certainly, mm -hmm. right? There's lots of ways to go about this. And, and, and often and, Tyler and, and I are like... And I'm a fan of, if I don't have to do it the hard way... Right. Do it the easy way. And the you, hard way could be... The hard way is JTAG. The, the yes. Easy, well, the, the, the hard, even the harder way. So the, 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 the medium way is going right to this SBI flash, and the easy way is something else altogether the talk we saw was talking about fault injection to bypass the kind of uh, key or a mechanism authentication mechanism they used to unlock the uh spy flash that was okay. on the on the sock and i'm not sure if it like there were no spy uh connectors on it or there was no jtag or you would have had to do the video that Mickey posted and like melt away the, the sock to get to yep. the connectors to JTAG it. Yep. If that was the case, like I understand. Uh, the presenter did an awesome job of fault injection and in his research is absolutely amazing. But and, Tyler and, and I and, being, and arguably fault like injection sneaky, is a hard way. Like, yeah, like sneaky hackers were like, can you just like clip the chip and dump the spy? That's why I was starting. Maybe he probably did start there, right? Um, in this post about Netcom, 
he was like, well, I had a URT, UART port, UART serial, which is just serial, right? 3.3 volt serial. Yeah. Yep. RST32. He's like, I did that and it, it dumped me into the thing. And then I had to, the, the shell that it initially, like if it booted all the way up and dumped him into a shell, that's like a shell to nowhere. There's a limited set of commands and like mm-hmm. you weren't really supposed to be here kind of thing. But if he halted boot and um, let's see, interrupted the boot process and added an extra kernel boot parameter. Uh-huh. So interacting with to like run a boot. shell. Yeah. And it equals bin sh got into the actual shell, an actual shell that let him access the file system yep. and then used netcat to transfer the files off. I'm like, see that? Yes. That <clears throat> if he did have to solder some stuff onto the board. But he got to the thing where, like, I got to analyze the yeah. binaries. And, and uh, having not read the article, I would have, uh, wouldn't have been surprised if he was interacting with the boot process to update the kernel to set the shell as default. He probably could have, if it was UE- UEFI, I'm uh, not UEFI, UEFI. If CFE, it was, he was at a CFE F- prompt. What is, I, is CFE, the, is that the, that's the bootloader. It has to be the bootloader. If he was at the bootloader, one of, I remember, you remember back from the Linksys days is that one of the common fail safes was to go yes. into bootloader mode and then you could Correct. flash a new firmware. Correct. You could also download the current firmware from that as well. So yes. we probably didn't even need to go that far. Right. This was a CFE prompt and he typed the command BA space A space init equals bin SH. Hmm. That, so CFE has to be, I want to say that sounds vaguely familiar. That uh, My uh, guess is that's the bootloader and he's telling it to <clears throat> boot the kernel with the parameter to that dumps him right into a shell. Yep. Which is awesome. And then do it the easy way. Then he finds an authentication bypass, which is kind of interesting in the way that the firmware and specifically the web server on the firmware was allowing files of .css and .html to .css and .png to be accessed without authentication. Hmm. And they weren't just checking for it at the end of the file name. It could be anywhere in the string. So including like um, dot CSS slash firewall dot command action view config actually passed authentication. Like it was, that's a pretty heinous authentication bypass actually. That's like really ridiculous code. Awesome work on the researcher to, to discover it and, uh, and do that. And then there was like another one if you went to a very specific URL, it was a 404. But the code that it loaded in the background started a Telnet server, which I thought was pretty awesome as well. I love, I love that. I love that. And then, of course, you, you know, your good old-fashioned stir copy buffer overflow uh, in, in one of them as well, which is what my research pointed to, which is kind of ironic, is that um, we analyzed 136, 38,000 uh, firmware packages. We found 198,000 CVEs. If you count the most popular CWE common weaknesses and enumeration associated with those 198,000 CVEs, you find, I forget the CVE, CWE number, but it's basically a buffer overflow. I'm like, oh, yes, that's awesome. Come on. Awesome. So it didn't surprise me that this person found a buffer overflow in the firmware. Uh Uh-huh. Speaking of uh, issues with firmware, before we move on to... uh taking over a dead IOT company. Mm. Um, the one that may be a little bit older, 
um, malware comes standard with this Android TV box on Amazon. I love this Did one. Did you see that? I don't we know. Talk, I was talking about this, but not on the <clears> show. <throat> it might have been with coworkers. We didn't talk about this on the show. Okay. Did I we, did, why uh, is we talking about this I, on the show? Because I wasn't here. I wasn't here last week, so uh, I apologize. And now I'm, we're old and we have bad memory now, so. But uh, a, a cheap uh, T95 Android uh, 10.0 TV box that was um, $39.99 with a $3 coupon for Amazon Prime members. Um, plug it in, turn it on, and started intercepting DNS uh, with uh, Pi-hole and found that right out of the box, the device was reaching out to many, many, many known active malware associated addresses. Uh, uh, one of them including the malware copycat, but uh, an unspecified uh, version of copycat. <clears throat> so you'd think if you're gonna do this and you're gonna go to the extent of putting this in as a supply chain kind of risk, You'd price it medium line. You'd sell it under a half, half known, half decent brand, and then you'd maintain persistence for a decent botnet that had some sophistication, not just like straight out to malware. Like it seems like a use of a kind of a cool technique. But that's me. Yeah. And Tyler, from the article, the one that I thought was fascinating, uh, in a similar fashion, um, uh, twenty in twenty twenty, uh, researchers from Malwarebytes uh, raised the alarm about something similar um, for government funded Android phones for low income households that came out of the box with pre installed Chinese uh, malware that was incapable of being removed. Sorry, it's very interesting. I'm looking at something right now that a dumb smartwatch from China gets shipped to you because you clicked on an SMS message saying you know from T Mobile with a spoof T-Mobile half-assed domain, they send you a damn watch and it's got an app that you install on your phone to enable the watch to do basic steps and heart rate. Like they send you a free watch. About to do some but shady it shit. comes with malware. About to do some shady shit. Do da, do da. It is, un I mean, they're having to get a little bit bank more details. Cheap. Why are my bank details going over my watch? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's <sighs> shit. So it's uh, it's interesting. Like they're going to the level of shipping hardware, or what if you got a watch that didn't work and didn't turn on until you installed the app? Like then the hardware doesn't even have to work. You just got them to install the app. Now you get access. Right. Like, right. This is this is pretty it's bad. Too late. Too late. I think I covered this. I think I covered this. Yep. And and Tyler, I think the the supply chain thing is pretty interesting here in that. You know, it could have been possible that the manufacturer of this device had no idea that this was was happening and that they just chose some, you know, Android base from some other company that's repackaging it to go on set-top boxes that's already pre-installed with malware because yeah, the how white How far box, down the supply chain yeah, do we have to go to find... Because the, the white the yeah. white boxers did, you know, were doing shady shady things or the developers for the white box Android, uh, Android installation were doing shady stuff. Who knows? Who knows? But was the compiler. Compile oh, my God. The compiler that compiles gets, the compiler that compiles the compiler old. that compiles it's, it's the It's compilers link. all the way down, man. <laughs> what about the editor that's used to write the code for the compiler that compiles the compiler that compiles the compiler? I don't know, but you had to compile that editor somewhere. That's right. That's right. <laughs> 
the compiler that compiles the editor that writes the code to compile the compiler. Right. <laughs> Is that why Tyler's releasing a free IDE? <laughs> but it was compiled with Paul's I mean, compiler. We have Joe, I mean, right? It gets to gets to the source of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was really punny, wasn't it? <laughs> <sighs> I'm going to fork you in your... Never mind. <laughs> oh, Sorry, where were we? Taking over a dead IoT company. <clears throat> yes, that's where we were. Jeez. Hilarious. So much so much fail on this one. Like, So, but this, this company sold the LED screens yep. that you see in the New York City Transit. Uh, well, you didn't see them there, but they were simulations of them yeah. so that businesses and home folks could put them in their homes so they knew when their trains were coming or when nearby businesses. Oh, so this was actually tied to the train. Like the initial <clears throat> thing is I buy one of these yep. and it connects to the cloud or someone else's computer. Yep. Same thing. And relays back the information the same information you that you would see right on the screen the led screens in the transit yep so like yep. uh if you open so this wasn't like i bought a hobbyist project in i can program my own led sign these were purpose built to only show <laughs> a specific set of data right well that, that was their intention anyway exactly exactly you know they have them in whole foods right here in san francisco in whole foods it broadcasts the bus lines so you can tell whether you're going to miss your bus okay i gotcha yep so yeah very very similar types of things and these devices were tailored to do that one type of display and paul you say oh this wasn't a hobbyist thing but the company oh, under the, the covers the company the company went bankrupt and they you know they said yeah get you know you didn't get your stuff, you know, tell the com the the credit card company to issue a charge back and all that type of stuff from the company. And yeah, the biz, you know, some analysis of acquiring a device and inspecting the inside, the business model as it was, was not sustainable. Like they were charging $300 MSRP for a device that had 150 to $200 worth of parts in it. It was an LED sign with a Raspberry Pi with a, a hat. With, that, with an Adafruit hat that was yep. arguably, and I'm not saying Adafruit stuff is overpriced. No, no, no. But this particular device was overpriced because it's intended to be a development platform, which then you use to go and develop your own module. And in fact, they even noted the LED signs noted could be direct wired for $2.50 as opposed to the $25 device that they ended up using. Right. <sighs> so you acquire one the company's out of business and uh when the sign based on a raspberry pi linux distribution can't get data from the real place such as the website that was owned by the company oh see if i was writing the code for this and it couldn't phone home i would put a, a default message you know what it would be mm. rooney eats it <laughs> But in this case, it used local data. I don't think everyone got the Larry got the reference. But uh, the the local data was inaccurate because it's been five years since that data was <laughs> right. updated. Um, so pulling it apart, um, this particular individual noticed that the code called out to a couple of websites to get that information. Specifically, one website. That it's kind of like our securityfail.com story from earlier. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> specifically to one website that the registration hadn't been renewed and was available and he bought it for like $20. Oh, 
and then could create and then created his own API endpoint. So now any of these signs that are still checking in with the API endpoint can check in and can get remote data that he controls. That's a lot of power. With great power comes great responsibility. responsibility. I don't think I am grown up enough to handle that level of responsibility. (laughs) Neither am I. Because you know what? Rooney eats it. <laughs> See, I, would, I would only I would only have it do it when I was in the proximity. Like I would have a have a Bluetooth script running in the background, so when it sensed my Bluetooth device, then it showed what I wanted it to that's show. How you, that's how you get caught, Tyler. Yes, that is how, in fact, you get caught. Maybe I'm walking on a train. Good luck. Mm. <laughs> Still, that like. Yeah. Please deposit 25 cents. I mean, yeah. you could get... Seven signs change as you walk past. <laughs> well, it's, no, it's but this wasn't proximity. It, it's not proximity, though. It's, it's the not ras- proximity, but no. there's a Raspberry Pi in there that could sense proximity. Uh-huh. Ra- 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 it's got a Raspberry Pi 3 could. with Bluetooth low energy in it. Yeah. And you control it. And yeah, how I, much... How much can, control did it have of the api I well wonder. allegedly from what i was reading in the article that those devices also had the ability to check in and could be remote administered by the company oh the different story now you can do exactly what tyler's talking about mm-hmm. For oh sure. now tell me there's a camera in them or a microphone uh not nope. by default right no nope but they could become transmitters because they're raspberry pi and they're wi-fi and bluetooth and they have gpio pins right and wow. they're connected okay. to networks Dear God. Okay, uh-huh. so effectively, we've gone over at least two stories tonight that have talked about life cycle of IoT, life cycle of devices, mm-hmm. life cycle of companies, life cycle of domains, mm-hmm. and how dangerous these things get after uh, the sale of the moment. You know, I, I sell this stuff for three years, and then I walk away, or whatever it was, right? And this whole life cycle is another aspect of supply chain, another aspect of the the, the, the big picture, if you will, about IoT devices, computers, cameras, everything. And it's one I don't think we're considering. This story was weird, though. Like, it took a lot of twists and turns. I like the, the right at the... Because yeah. he researched some of the company and what they were <clears throat> what they were up to, like, why they went on business. There's yep. and they screenshots and the fr- of conversations, and then, and tweets then f- from, like, the former CEO yep. and, and stuff. Then, like, and yeah. then folks that were, you know, creating similar types of products mm-hmm. that were being accused of, you know, being the fraudulent people behind this other, the, the original one, and, yeah. It is well, I mean, even, <clears throat> like, the tech and the hacking stuff, which is amazing, as, as, you know, Larry and I were kind of brainstorming, like, what we would do with it and all that stuff and how it works, but... The story behind the company is also kind of interesting overlaid on the, on this technical stuff. So definitely check it out. My story number 20. Yes. Where to <clears throat> next? <clears throat> Sam, you got some stories in there? Sam did. Sam yeah, I was one. just thinking about this uh, open GPT thing. Uh, and the story that caught my attention about it, uh, ChatGPT, is that CNET has been publishing articles written by AI without properly identifying them. And not only are they full of errors, but now they find that they're just plagiarized. Huh. It appears that they just trained the machine learning on their competitor stories. So it's just repeating their competitor stories, just changing a few words in it. Oh, 
Well, I mean, Sam, how, is, do, how, do you, how do you feel about students that are going to use this to cheat? Well, I don't care. I mean, I think students should learn how to use it. I think it's just another tool and they should yeah. learn just like they learn how to use Google. I mean, uh, if I write tests where you can cheat this way, then I should write a different kind of test. Well, and you, you have to understand the code that it, so I was, it was spoiler alert, Hal Pomerantz, right? It's coming on the show. We were brainstorming some stuff and Hal says to me, it'd be really cool if you could write an eBPF filter that would look at all running processes and detect any new connections that they that they created. I don't think this is anything like new or novel. I feel like Capsulate and a bunch of other vendors. I mean, Little Snitch on macOS mm -hmm. uh, does this, right? Yeah. But when Hal said that, he's like, you don't have to write that. He's like, the harder part would be writing an interface for Linux on the desktop that would that would do that. Because <laughs> it's Linux. And, and yeah, and like then like all three people would use it and it'd be great. But so I was like, well, <laughs> I don't know how to. I don't know how to write that. I'm like, Chat GPT, write well, me an eBPF filter that looks at all running processes and tells me about never before. I phrased it like this specifically. Tells me about never before seen connections. It understood what I said and wrote the code. Like I looked at the code and I'm not again like, what I could derive from the code. Done some programming, like that. That looks that looks valid. I haven't tested it yet, but I'm like, that looks valid. I'm like, that's that's really cool. Well, you know, Stack Exchange has banned it, saying that the GPT written code is so full of bugs, it's wasting all their time trying to deal with the flaws. Right, right. So it has a high error rate. But I mean, essentially, it's doing what a real programmer would typically do, which is Google until you find somebody's code and then base it on that. Yeah. And I think that's funny that Stack Overflow banned that. But arguably, it's a predictive language model, and it needs to be trained. I wouldn't be surprised if they use Stack Overflow sure. to train the model. But we, I think what Sam, but Sam, you're where I'm at yeah. with this. Essentially, it's someone else's code. In this case, it's not a person; yeah. it's an AI engine. But that's based on other people's code. Like they didn't just yeah. base it on machines. Like let's get a bunch of machines to write code to train the model for machines to write code. It doesn't happen that way. We use human code to train the machine on how to write yeah. code. This is essentially its interpretation of what code a person would mm -hmm. write. We can go find that online. I probably could have Google searched and found something pretty similar. Maybe chat GPT gets me a little closer. Again, I haven't tested yeah. it. Mm -hmm. I have to tweak and tune it and make it work. And that's cool. That's a great starting point. I think that's probably the state of uh, AI today, right? It's yeah, well, you know, code, this is just a better, it's a better user interface. So now we're getting up to like Captain Correct. Kirk, where you just ask computer, tell me if there's life on that planet and yeah. it figures it out. It, yeah. it saves me from tuning my Google search and then searching the stack overflow directly and then parsing through and pulling together multiple people's snippets of code to make up what, what I want. It gives me a little more of a direct answer, yeah. And also, computer. as far as education goes, there was an article I read where a teacher was teaching a malware analysis class to a bunch of students that were not all really ready for it. And he made them all have chat GPT open. And he said it greatly improved the course mm -hmm. because people that would get stuck on a basic concept would ask chat GPT instead of having to interrupt and ask the teacher. So he thinks every student should just have it open all the time. It's like a private tutor to help you with Correct. your questions. Correct. Hmm. Until that private tutor is wrong. Well, the teachers are wrong too often. I mean, oh, yeah, it sure might be as accurate as the teacher. Sure. But at least when the teacher puts the wrong uh, puts the wrong answer to a question on a test, you're going to fail successfully. 
<laughs> you see what I'm saying? If the teacher is wrong no, in their I've knowledge and they put and a question the, on the test and, and the, the student, answer is wrong, so fundamentally wrong, but the student is also wrong. Oh, yes, but when yes, the student yes. corrects the teacher, the teacher can throw the student out of class so they don't do that crap anymore. <laughs> I know at least one person who uses one of the AI systems to start their reports. Basically, just they don't write the reports, but they say, hey, I'm writing a report about this. Get me started. And it writes them the first paragraph, two or three different iterations of the first paragraph. And it just helps kick their brain off. Yeah, I like that because I hate starting with a blank page. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. So that kind of thing is great. But and the idea of tutoring using an AI, what am I doing wrong with this code? Oh, I see this. It may point them in a different direction, but it gets them out of the rut. Yes. Okay. Uh, And that that I'm fine with. That I'm fine with. Starting well, with Microsoft is buying it, and it's just going to be the next generation of Clippy. And I always loved Clippy. I mean, <laughs> did you you're really? You're a sick man, Sam. You're a sick man. Uh, did you? Did you like Microsoft? That. Microsoft Bob before you had Clippy too. I never tried Microsoft Bob, but Clippy made me a hero. I was the only one that would use Clippy at my company, and they thought I knew everything. They would ask me anything, and I would find the answer. And Clippy Sam, would give you the answer. Sam, wow. Be honest. Yeah. Did you have Bonzi, buddy? No, I saw it. I would clean that off. That was just malware. Mm. Okay, just checking. <laughs> but Clippy uh, was awesome. The irony is uh, at work today, I made the joke that uh, at our stand-up about what we were working on, and I'm working on a paper uh, right now, and I said, man, I'm not going to get any work done because ChatGPT is at capacity. Mm-hmm. And yeah. every, of course, everybody uh, Just refresh. I know. You got to like refresh, re-log in, and then... then uh, believe me, I, I tried. Yeah. Tried. Oh, and you still didn't... <laughs> yeah, 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 I tried all day. Well, I mean, then I, mean I, I mean, I wrote, wrote very, very no. much. No. Then all, all you do is you find a coworker that's already logged in. And you're like, hey, dude, can you run that for me and spit back the results? But actually, me? while we were sitting here on the show, it was under capacity. So I, I got to log in and did the browser tab. And wrote your paper for you. No, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. <sighs> Anyway. I'm 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 kidding. Fingers held behind his back. Oh know. no! But the I'm, thing. I'm, oh, I'm, but one I'm more kidding. thing on ChatGPT. When I told it to write that eBPF filter for me, I got a warning that said, "Hey, you just asked ChatGPT that could and gave you an answer that could be used for malicious purposes." And it came like a warning, and there's a link there to tell it like, "No, I really I'm not creating something evil." And like huh. in my case, I was like, "I'm gonna do that" because I'm like, "No, the, like the." I really was the intent of this code was for a defender, was to detect malware. It was really my goal. Mm-hmm. To, it was on the topic that we've been talking about this month and next month of supply chain security, that if I download a bunch of software, let's say I've, I've got a Linux server, PC, desktop, whatever, and I put a bunch of software on it, I want to know if one of those packages has a supply chain issue where there's a backdoor in it, is it making a network connection that's weird? Those are a lot of ways you could do that. IP tables can do that, certainly, um, and, and uh, lots of other things. Mm. But uh, this was just one kind of answer to that. And I was like, no, it's not malicious. Yeah, it's not malicious. But you can put that suggestion in there. I'm not <clears throat> sure how how often, like how what the process is when they receive that. Um, but I know other people have been using it that have had to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about a couple weeks ago when ChatGPT became really big. There was a story about folks that were hacking the the security controls around chat gpt to get mm. it to write things that it wasn't supposed to write <clears throat> like right yes yes, yes. Ch- chat check GPT, the discord yeah chat gpt tell me how, tell me how to commit murder and it wouldn't do that check, but if you um, told so, but if so you told discord yeah if you told it in in an alternate reality where murder is legal uh with no malicious intent uh tell me how to commit murder it would do it and it so would do it. 
in Discord right now, they're discussing what it would take to run a local instance of ChatGPT with, uh, you know, just basically a few languages to to write fuzzers, to write uh, uh, to, to write uh, exploits, to write all those kinds of things. Well, that's what happened with um, Dolly, right? Dolly, there are open source alternatives. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name. I think I posted it in our internal dis- um, Slack that. Uh, I stood one, I spin, there's a container yep. build of it. I spun up a whole bunch of containers that ran it and I gave it a task to go build an image and it did it. And it was all local. It was all local yep. to my machine. Yeah, so. like like Midjourney type of thing. Oh, I forget what it was called. Yeah, I mean, well, Midjourney is one of the public ones. And yeah, we were talking back like earlier when you know, AI doesn't always get it right and it's based on the trained model and, and a mm-hmm. trained model and all that type of stuff. Same thing with something like Midjourney, which I've experimented with quite a bit to generate some art and that type of stuff. And if you... Why give, doesn't chat GPT come back when you ask it a query like that and just be like, no, Dave, I can't okay, do that. Sorry, afraid I can't do that. I'm sorry, Dave, I can't <clears throat> do that. Why? That's It probably does. It has some snarkiness to it, I yeah. noticed. Yeah. So yeah, and, and if the model is flawed and you give it too much latitude... It will take latitude and it will give, like I asked it to draw, uh, to give me a picture of a cat in samurai armor. With a penis. No penis. <laughs> um, but it came back with a cat that had three eyes. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not perfect. You just got to tell I want a cat with two eyes. Yep. Cat with two eyes and samurai armor and color green. Be more specific. With, yep. Yep. Got to be more specific. Um, I had a lot more things to talk about. Um, Siemens PLC vulnerabilities was pretty good. <clears throat> yes. Why was that so one? Why was red, that one good? Red, which which red story balloons, is this? Red oh, balloons, this is a, which story? Yeah. Which story? Pause. My story number twenty-one. This was. Oh yes. They no, I didn't read like the the full like basically they bypassed um, secure boot, but it's not secure boot as we talk about in the UEF. We talked about this with uh, Ang Sui when he came on the show. I specifically remember asking him like secure boot, but then like there's devices that apply security to the boot process. But when we say secure boot, it is in reference to the UEFI specification that defines secure boot. Or you may have a device that is not UEFI based that can implement some other type of uh, secure booting process. Right, that is not. Well, there's there's integrity checks for the loading and execution of the code right. that runs with inside of you know maybe it's a real time operating or the memory space uh, of a PLC, but there was a ton of vulnerabilities like signatures not being checked, remote code execution not validating firmware before the execution of the bootloader, uh, and these are this is so this is the S7 1500 series. So there's like Somatic, yeah. there's a substantial amount yeah. of products with inside of that category it's not just when you read that that seems like one product this is a large amount of pllcs that is very very common out in in the uh, ot space so yeah this uh, is tyler says it does need physical access so which so this we, is the the secure <laughs> element shared secret is exposed allows attackers to abuse the secure element the shared secret resides in the device's non-volatile storage which can be accessed by attackers is that what they mean by physical like I dumped the spy yeah. flash kind of similar thing or maybe something similar. The crypto authentication chip can be used as an oracle to generate the decryption seed, which is used to derive the AES keys for encrypted firmware. So that's like, yeah. I don't have the key, but I have the seed so I can create the key, essentially. It's kind of- so 
or decrypt what you have available. So normally you can't even, even if you can get a update in the update process, that's a uh, an asymmetrical download and you don't, it's an encrypted piece of firmware. You don't have the ability to reverse engineer, tear it apart. Like it takes some very specific skills that uh, Red Balloon guys do a fantastic mm. job. But um, because of these vulnerabilities, then that allows you a lot of leeway to get access to that code, you know, add in uh, persistence and have it be a valid checksum so that it actually runs on boot. So usually those are things that are, you can't just recompile a new firmware uh, and make it valid for a system to, to execute or even look at it and go the reverse method and see what is and decrypt the, uh, the code and the firmware that is there. So, but it, I think you really could, cause the last thing it says, the plain text bootloader reveals the firmware AS, AS key derivation and decryption scheme. The in scheme, that case, but not, not the key. Not the key. Right. I got you. so you couldn't put your own firmware on it. Essentially, Correct. out of the game. You know, I read another article about this, and I think the fundamental flaw is they do not have a TPM or secure element. They don't have any chip with a with a, a non-writable key to serve as the root of trust. They need to add that hardware to these devices, right? That's Most of the time on a real real-time operating system, though, that's very compute heavy for the speed at which it has to boot, right? And and you're talking about a very very small memory space and or chip, uh, you know, operating system on a chip or a sock. But it's it's UEFI um, that enables the TPM. If your UEFI is compromised, or that's what the, enabling the TPM. Well, there has to be an initiation for the key exchange to get the TPM to communicate with UFEI, right? So there's right. even a more, more step with inside of that. So what is the fix for this? It, it's no, not I mean, TPM because someone was asking me about that in my talk and I yep. answered the question. Someone else answered the question was like a similar explanation to what I had. And I asked my coworkers about it and they basically said the same thing that UEFI is before the TPM uh, is enabled. So, I mean, I'm not saying like, all attacks are not possible and TPM protects nothing. I'm just saying it depends. My understanding is it depends on what stage of the boot the attacker is at. The earlier in the stages of boot, the less relevant the TPM stuff is. From what and I these think. these devices are are pretty secure. I mean, it takes yeah. a, a sophisticated. Yeah, actor I'm gonna say everything is like insecure, but I I think again it depends on what stage of boot you're talking about and where attacker has control. You can only like if the attacker controls the very earliest stages of boot, everything that comes after that is is like meaningless. And so they have physical access at this point. So that means yeah. that most of the other devices like this is not as common. There are protections on, you know, they've built protections with inside the chip. There are encryption keys. The firmware process is, is done. I think there's some fundamental things in this particular version uh, where they're not doing uh, that root of trust. Uh, or asymmetrical signature verification at the proper points in the code. And so I imagine that the, the other versions of this have that either implemented or there are other protections built into the hardware itself because this has not been a problem and there are a lot of people that have looked at, at did you say, this version. Did you say asymmetrical? Yes. Is that a thing? Asymmetric. I think the asymmetrical? I think asymmetrical? I think the biggest thing you pointed out there, Tyler, is it requires physical access. Yeah. Yes. And and that becomes you know 
you go deploy these things in the field, all right, um, you know, physical access where these things are going to be deployed in OT network is going to be a little bit harder to get a hold of in many cases. In the cases where you probably really want to get at them with, you know, OT networks that are, you know, critical infrastructure or something of the like, <clears throat> certainly we're going to find them in other places that are less critical. Um your but risk profile is very different, right? With, yeah. With these, cause you but, can have a variety of physical applications that may be at risk and maybe hostile environments. Yep. Maybe out in the boonies or maybe in a secure OT, you know, plant facility. So yep. they're and, everywhere. Yep. And you also need, because of the physical access, you need to consider supply chain security, the physical supply chain security. Like, did oh, you yeah. did, did you buy these from a third party reseller and not from Siemens directly? And where you can't was detect it? If it's physically been tampered with, right? Signature well, checks out. Yeah. You're right, actually. I mean, it's harder to detect. It's harder I mean, to detect. You may, need to, you may need physical access in order to detect that. There was That's a fake, actually a pretty wasn't there, there was an article about some fake uh, Cisco gear floating around I saw too. Yeah. Yep. Which was interesting. Also related, was related to what we're talking about is uh, my story number 22. Uh, Matthew Garrett. Love his blog. Um and I don't. Yes. This is an area I need to, I need to read up on a little more. Um, what I gathered from the like the first paragraph in Matthew's article was that hardware security modules are different from things like smart cards, TPMs, YubiKeys, and other platform security enclaves devices that don't allow arbitrary access to keys, but which don't offer the same level of assurance as an actual HSM. In result, orders of magnitude cheaper. So I'm quoting Matthew directly from there, which I think is interesting because we started to talk about TPMs a little bit, and he kind of lumps those into a different thing from an actual hardware security module, um, which is interesting. He kind of kicks this off with like, you have to have a secure way to store your cryptographic keys. There's also like, a, I think akin to the chicken and the egg problem they were alluding to before. Like if you have a secure way to store your keys and retrieve your keys, something needs to enable that hardware that is storing your keys and enabling key retrieval. And whatever is enabling that hardware has to have software that we call firmware in order to do that. And if that's compromised, uh, you're screwed. But certainly I think any of these mechanisms, HSM, TPMs, or whatever, is better than storing it on the actual disk, because then it, I, I feel it's up to gra it's up for grabs even outside. Mm -hmm. It's in user land at that. Yeah, so kind of like got me thinking. Like, there's a level level of obfuscation and or um, additional work that needs to be done to acquire it. Right. <clears throat> so I'm, now I'm thinking like I don't like my keys in user land, you know, but now how much work do you want to do for what you? Mm for what you protect because we may say, well, that, that's like really insecure. All right, I stored my keys and you, well, your SSH keys are stored in user land because you're the user and you need access to them. And there are files that are on a disk and it's only file system permissions and user level permissions that govern access to them, which essentially means nothing to, to most attacks that we talk about, right? In any case, he was looking at the Apple hardware and how to store it in uh, Apple hardware and I like this article because this is like a, such a unique problem that I wanted to save it in case one of my friends or myself runs into this problem. I've got a very specific <laughs> example of 
like the wall that Matthew ran up against, uh, which I applaud him for sharing. So he said, um, basically, he was trying to store keys in the the, the Apple um, uh, hardware. He says, with it immediately failing if the key isn't RSA, which isn't since the secure enclave doesn't support RSAs, Apple's PKCS 11 module appears incapable of making use of keys generated on Apple's hardware. So even Apple's own hardware wouldn't store the RSA key. And he got to that by like, looking down at the exact code that is doing the check to see if the key is valid. I thought it was pretty cool. Like, again, a very, very specific use case and problem uh, that I thought highlighted some really cool stuff. Yeah, that is an interesting article. Yeah, it's another like must read. Like, there's a lot of fluff and drivel that's out there. In, 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 so I've been trying lately to make a conscious effort to pull like actual interesting articles from people that aren't like just running the regular security drivel kind of covering the industry kind of thing. Um, so this is a good read. You should definitely uh, definitely check it yeah. out. Uh, it was funny. I, I, I've recently uh, been turned on to uh, Matthew Garrett's uh, blog because of uh, because of you because I went and imported yeah. all your OPML RSS yeah, feeds yeah, yeah. and uh, did a bunch of dedupe and a bunch of other stuff and Matthews was one of the ones that survived and I'm like whoa it's good stuff yeah. also Nicholas Spark did I put his article in there too I don't ooh, he's don't. another one of my favorites um exploring CVE 2021 nope that's not it that's a different one oh uh, my story number six. So Nicholas Stark. Now it's interesting. Both Matthew and Nicholas fall in my mind in the same category of many of my coworkers, Zeno Koba, Corey Kallenberg, Tremel Hudson, Vincent Zimmer. When I did all of the research that backed my firmware security realizations blogs on Eclipsium's uh, site. So parts one, two, and three. I started running across, whether I was like, it was UEFI, Secure Boot, um, Intel ME, um, Spy Flash protections, right? When I researched all those topics, I found a number of names in common, right? I quickly found that many of them were my coworkers. I was like, well, that's really freaking cool because I get to talk to all these people all the time. It's awesome. But there was this whole other list of people and it's not a long list. There was like, I kept coming across the same names of people who were doing this type of research into firmware and boot processes and UEFI and things like that. So that's also how I found Nicholas Spark. He was on that list of when I did all the research for those three blog posts, a name that, that came up uh, quite often. And if they didn't do the research, they had like papers and articles that were talking about the research. So got this like really cool set of people and... I found their blogs and I realized some of them are still writing. And so Nicholas Stark started doing a thing where CVE Wednesday yep. and he does a deep dive into like a random. He, he just started CVE. doing that. He, exact. Just started doing that the past couple of weeks. And this one happened to be on UEFI and EFI modules that are reading from NVRAM using the get variable function, which is a high percentage of the time the issue with buffer overflows and the like um, uh, in UEFI. And so um, what was interesting about this one though, is he said the EFI modules make multiple get set variable calls in the same function. 
And when you do that, the data size variable has to be reinitialized to zero before subsequent variable core calls in order to avoid this vulnerability. So basically you have to reset the size of the buffer. Otherwise it's from your previous call. That's what the buffer will be if you make a subsequent call. I was like, oh, I remember being a programmer getting yelled at for this. <laughs> for not initializing my variables or not yeah. reinitializing my variables. I got yelled at a lot for that because it's an easy damn mistake to make. I don't necessarily fault people for making it. I've made that mistake too. But in this case, it leads to really bad things. And it's the, a lot of the bad things that Jesse Michael was talking about when we did the SSM, uh, SMM uh, segment and we were talking about UEFI variables, which is really cool. And it's a full breakdown of this this particular CVE, I think, was a Dell. Was a Dell firmware. Um, it was discovered by someone else who I don't recognize. Um, and I want to say it was like in a, a Dell firmware. Which, yeah, it was a Dell Inspiron. Which, <coughs> again, not picking on Dell. Every OEM or most OEMs out there have to do a level of customization to the UEFI code set in order to implement things. Variables is a common thing. So OEMs can define their own, I believe define their own variable, right Todd? They can define, they define their own variables as well as extending the standard as as, ones. As long as they map those right to whatever the SDK or you know your Redfish library, whatever library is, right. the OEM is shipping based on the chip that they've put on there from right. the manufacturer. In Redfish, it's kind of like, um, I think it was Nate that likened it to uh, Nate Warfield when my coworkers likened it to uh, CVE, uh, SNMP rather, where you've got your MIBs, you've got your standard MIBs, and then you've exactly. got your extended MIBs. It, it's very similar model to that. Um, and it, like, like I said, every OEM has to, you know, write this level of code. It, this particular seems to lend itself towards vulnerabilities. So, um, or, take, or take the default examples from the from Tiano, yeah, Tiano Core, EDK2, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's a cool oracle. Hey, uh, Sam's got to leave in uh, five minutes. I got another story you want to hit, mm. Sam? Yeah, well, there's one I thought was pretty exciting in the New York Times, you know, that the uh, head of the, uh, just a moment, I've got trouble at my computer here. Oh. Um, but the the head of the FBI's counterintelligence was working for a Russian oligarch all along and hiding it. Really scandalous stuff. Yeah. It, it, pretty uh, appalling stuff. Oh, this, made, holy crap. This sounds like the, million dollars. what was the famous yeah. FBI mole that there was a movie about? What was his name? Every spy movie this happens. Oh, there's a, there's a, the most famous like mole in the um, deep throat. Mm -mm. No, that's not it. Oh, that's uh, a different movie uh, altogether. It was something stupid like Essing or something. It was a. Uh, mm. he they, they, was that the one that was asked to run Robert the, the, the investigation. Robert, Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. That was a movie about that. Yeah. Well, this guy was Charles McGonagall, and now he's uh, being prosecuted. He took about a quarter of a million dollars in secret cash payments while on the job in order to sneak interns into the system who would work inside the FBI who were actually working for the Russians. He was working for an oligarch that's connected to murders and money laundering and other crimes. And he, risked, up, but just, he risked all that for a quarter of a million dollars? Yeah, for a quarter of a million dollars, he that was an insider. Low. 
at no? the top of national security, he was working for the mob. This is, you know, corruption right to the top. Yeah, but like you go to prison for treason, like that's really bad. That's not worth a quarter of oh, a million yeah. dollars. No, that's worth book. way more than a quarter. The say, risk, the risk there was worth a million. Yeah. I know it doesn't take much money to corrupt people. Apparently, that's well. Well, they not you know in this mean? economy when it, I mean, it's twenty dollars a box, right? But as we know, um, they prey upon. So oh, I was listening to something. I think it was from a CIA, a former CIA agent, and they talked about it on the flip side, right? Like we're trying to get someone else in another nation state to flip, and they would definitely prey upon people that needed money whether right. gambling and he said my he said his favorite one you know his favorite one was tyler people are getting divorced yep said, i flip people are getting divorced yeah. and they would he told the story this is like why he, lifestyle polygraphs exist. yeah exactly yes. exactly yes. but he said he met with someone and they were like kind of on the fence about it and then they called him back a couple of weeks later and they're like look my wife's leaving me i changed my mind I will be a mole, give you whatever you want if you give me money because like I'm getting a yeah. divorce and I really I really need the money. And so that is likely, and now we're talking about on the flip side, like Russians trying to get Americans to flip. They, it's, it, this is all, I mean, well-known tactics for well over 50 years, right? Yeah, of, yeah. Of how to flip people, so. But I mean, in the world of social engineering, I think we need to understand that humans go through different periods in their life and there are periods right. when they are troubled and vulnerable and you can strike them then. So really, oh you ought to be able to- And that's what the CIA agent, the guy also said like the mental state that people in, if they're getting a divorce, lends it toward themselves towards like they need a friend. He's like, I would be their yeah. friend. And, oh, and you've just been betrayed. Yeah, so all your idea of yeah. trust is shot. Yep. Spot on, man. Spot on. And it's you know awful, I mean, word... it's awful to think about. Like, I I don't know if I could bring myself to be that agent that I like. I know I'm taking advantage of someone, but I know it's for national security. But like, that's an, a moral and ethical dilemma, too. Like, that's Would the CIA handlers say they look for people who can compartmentalize their morals. Yes. You know, and and accept doing something really immoral for a higher purpose for the greater good. Yeah, you know that the, the word need, honey the pot needs of the many the outweigh trap. the needs of the few. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the but word honeypot and honey trap did not come from technology; it mm-hmm. came from that. Sparrows and, and you know, there is there's anti-insider threat software you can get now, which ought to work. I mean, you ought to be able to predict when the people at your company are going through this kind of turmoil. Um, and you'd, have to, have, you'd have to have a model, though, right? Like, if people don't talk and people are to themselves and outwardly like. A lot of sociopaths, narcissists, like they're not going to be outwardly discussing this. You'd have to have some very, some very good metrics and well, indicators. I think that would be very difficult at work. I, I would say for well, no. I think the idea is there are clues. You can see they're spending more time playing games. They're showing up not on time as often. They're, you know, there would be clues in their work performance. Yeah, but you got to be careful too. Like I also. That's hard. I mean, that's hard. Spend that's hard. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, that's hard because people, people can change their habits for a number of different reasons. And yeah, now we're talking about making decisions about people. And that's always a lot of variables that you just don't know the values to. And if you calculate wrong, let's do a whole podcast on drones that can taser people and whether or not that's a good idea. <laughs> Right. And I mean, there's two sides to that story. Can I analyze the firmware first? Like law enforcement doesn't have to be put in harm's way is one side of the coin. 
but also people who really didn't commit a crime are getting tasered by a, a drone is also a really bad thing. Like that's a real, yeah. I mean, there are ethics commissions that have uh, talked about this issue at length, decided it's not a good idea. And then there are companies that have implemented it and given it to law enforcement uh, as well. That's right. That's a human has never been replaced in, in intelligence games, right? Like right. we could have went all to SIGINT because we have great models. We've got good access to data. We've got massive supercomputers and, and people to look at that. But human, we have the ability of intuition and the ability to read people, mm-hmm. to look at and evaluate someone that may not have any SIGINT data or is very careful and leads a, a life that is outside reflective of not internal things. And, and something like, you know, the MICE protocol where you're looking at uh, money, ideology, uh, what's the other one, uh, coercion or, or compromise or something like that, and then uh, your ego, like a lot of those reads in order for the case officer to look at those takes takes a human to evaluate that is experienced and not just experienced with uh, outward and, and the data collected from conversation, but the non-tangibles, the, the feelings and the guts and and being able to read people very, very well. And we just, we can't do that with technology. I don't think we'll ever quite get there. Oh, yeah. I wanted to give a shout out because now I know where I read this or heard, and, uh, listened to and, this. And, Sam, and Sam's got to get going, so. Yeah, that's all right. Okay, fair ball. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Oh, Sam. Thanks, Thanks. Sam. Okay. <clears throat> and after you get done with yeah. your shout out, I get go a ahead. shout out. But yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. No, uh, you go first nope. because. no, nope. I can't find it. Okay, I'll go ahead. Shout out. Uh, yeah, you do it first. To, now I, to, oh, Ro- no, I to Romer. Oh, dude, like major bummer, man. Like I put yeah. on Facebook, like <clears throat> Romer, like my family had this. I'm not sure how like pervasive this phrase or term is. But in my family, like I remember growing up listening to my family members, probably when I shouldn't hear or have uh-huh. heard words like this. Right. <laughs> they would always refer to someone who was like, really funny and outgoing as a hot shit. Yep. And that is a phrase that I would use to describe Romer. Like the dude yep. was always just a hot shit. Like he was whether I was interviewing a podcast yep. or the Defcon vendor area, like he just always put a smile on my face cuz like the dude was just a hot shit. Yep. Was, he he spoke he spoke his mind. Yeah. He was unabashedly, you know, crass yes but as you said he spoke his mind yes but but in the converse if you had gone to that guy and said dude i need help he'd have given you the shirt off his back and his last pack of smokes and like salt of the earth kind of kind of person and he just had this way about you that totally disarmed anything like I, I can remember the one of the first times i met romer we were at some small party at one of my first defcons mm-hmm. and we were sitting down we're chatting chatting about wi-fi and mm-hmm. the, oh, the, world, the, the world he invented he the, the worldwide worldwide war drive. drive yes and we're sitting down and someone says romer the streaming server's down type of thing and he's like oh hold on a minute and he goes and fixes thing and he's like Dude, I got a library of like two terabytes of porn on this thing. Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, no, oh. hold on. Put that. <laughs> and I didn't put this on Facebook. <laughs> but, but I linked to the podcast interview and you might yeah. have been on this one too. I think you and I both did it with Romer back in the day. Yep. 
And I'm pretty sure on that podcast episode is when I learned that he would take his two terabytes. Now, back in the day, actually, two terabytes was a lot. Yeah, like I don't even know it was two terabytes. It was a lot. A lot. For yeah. even back in the day, it was a lot. Two terabytes, including like He described right? it as the most disgusting porn that he could find yep. that he would put on a projector and project it out toward the window of his hotel room like during DEF CON. Yep. I don't know why I, I remember that about because I thought it was a hilarious hack. We talk about shenanigans. Like, that was... Yep. That was shenanigans. But yeah, man. Shenanigans that probably wouldn't fly today. Granted, and I'm I'm very in tune with that and sensitive to that, but like sure. back in the day, those were those were those were shenanigans those that were, were shenanigans. perfectly acceptable. Yeah. But well, I don't know if they were perfectly acceptable, but they were perfectly acceptable in that crowd, I think. Uh, I'm pretty sure he got in trouble for probably back then too. <laughs> but but yeah. but either way, man, like I remember so many conversations with Romer and just he was he was infectious and, yes and man uh, arguably with some of the stuff that i learned from him early on and some of the stories that we had really helped mm. to put me where i am today like I, I i think the last time i talked to him was a remembrance of i have a travel case and i still think the sticker is on it from back like early days when we started the podcast first Mm -hmm. year or two of the podcast i think he sent us a bunch of stickers and one of them was i'm in your networks stealing all your meths yes oh that was Romer. that was Romer. yeah yeah, yeah. and i reached uh, we talked about that on the podcast episode now that you said we asked him about that sticker i'm pretty yeah, sure and he told us, he told the story mm. he told the story and uh, I, you know, a memory came up on Facebook a couple of years ago about that sticker, and he's like, "I think I still got some of those around somewhere. Let me see if I can send you one." Oh, and there was a story <laughs> behind that sticker too. He told us. I'm pretty sure he told us on the podcast interview. I think so. If so not. I, uh, I think it was Mark Rogers that put on Facebook um, a, a post, you know, about Romer and in honoring Romer, and I made a comment with the link to our podcast about him. And I, w I was actually just telling my wife. Um, the other night it may have been last night i was like super sad that you know when people in our community pass away because we're all close and very mm -hmm. degrees but we feel part of a community and i'm like i'm glad we had like i feel kind of weird that like we interviewed someone who's who's passed away but i always like to share that piece of that person because we captured we didn't really know it at the time right but we captured someone for an hour that is no longer with us that we we have that forever right like no one can take it to us like it take it from us it's on the internet we yep. captured that person in the moment of their lives at that time and so i'm very thankful for that but also like deeply saddened when we lose people of course yeah uh in our industry so or anyone in our lives for that matter but um you know we did we have we have a piece of of romer's legacy I'm like honored and, and, and to, and, like, and I want to clarify like, that. I want to clarify that when you say we have a piece of Romer's, Romer's legacy or, or memory, the royal we, as in the community. Yeah, we. You're right. We make available to the community a piece of their yeah. their history, right? Yeah. Just like Barnaby Jack and Cedric Blanchard and Dan Kaminsky and and so many others. You know, um, I mean, it's kind of morbid, but I think also part of the like a positive thing and part of the grieving process. I like, I want to make available a playlist of all the people that we've interviewed that have passed away. A, but like that's super more like, yeah, uh, I like really need to take, take a deep breath and go, <laughs> yes, I'm going to create this. It's going to be really sad and really emotional 
to create this, but I think it's important to preserve their legacy, right? So I promise we will do that at some point for sure. I mean, anyone could go do the pull in our archive. I mean, it's all out there. It's not like we're releasing stuff that hasn't been released. It's all on the internet right now. Yep. And then you can go pull it. So, yep. so, um, so, so my final words. Thanks, Romer. Thank you, Romer. Um, I did want to shout to the Barcode podcast with Chris Glandon. He interviewed Jim Lawler. I don't, did I interview Jim Lawler or did Jordan Harbinger? Oh. He, Jim Lawler has been on a podcast tour in the past few years. He's a former CIA um, operative and uh, was the one I was talking about uh, previously as well. So go go check that out. Uh, Barcode is their, their latest episode. If you Google for Jim Lawler, I feel like he's done a bunch of podcast interviews as well. I don't know if we interviewed him or someone else, but yeah, anyway. Uh, I'd search the wiki for it, but yeah, oh. pretty cool stuff. Oh, also, I almost forgot. Um, the guys that do Hack Redcon in Louisville. Yeah. Hack, Hack Space Con 2023 is at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Oh. Florida. In April. Yeah. Oh. Uh, here, I'll post it in there. Uh, we're actually going to try and have them on for just like a five or ten minute briefing of like what they're going over. But like they have some cool stuff that they're going to do there. And we're trying to get like high school kids and colleges. So if you have high school kids, colleges, <laughs> there's free training there. There's going to be uh, all kinds of really cool stuff at, at the Kennedy Space Center. So like a huge shout out to those guys for the venue that they got and what they're going to do with that. We need to get that word out because they're looking for sponsors too. We really yeah, do need that. To that, that is a cool venue if it's where I think it is because I was just there about a month ago. Yeah, yeah. I just presented oh, there. Oh, yes. You were right. I, yeah. I think it is at almost the exact same spot, Larry. Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool place. Yeah, so hackspacecon.com. We'll try and get them on to do just like a five or ten minute like snippet of what they're looking. But they are looking for some big sponsors. So if you guys know any companies or work for one of those companies, tell them it would be a really cool place to get in a vertical that is a little harder to get into. Oh, I want to talk about Santa. Cool. There is a Google project for Mac OS called Santa. It's a binary authorization system for Mac OS system extension that monitors for executions but you can't can you have system by system extensions do they mean kernel extensions probably they, they, can't didn't mean, allow, they can't be kernel extensions and they decapitated that right yep no kicks kick no uh you can't load your own kernel module in mac os anymore but there's user space sandboxing that accepts right. kicks right right Larry? yes there, there's still some user space stuff so they heavily sent but as but there's certainly ones that they don't allow you to do anymore. Yes, certain privileges I can I can I can see that. This is the I mean Brian because yeah, I was just talking about this right like the the the, the walled a, garden versus the open. Yeah, because I, I I throw up my system preferences right now, and if you've got a kernel extension that has some interface to it, that's where they're going to show up. And right now, I am on do do, do Monterey. Uh, yep. twelve five one, and I have fused GPG Suite and Java as kernel extensions. Gotcha. Because they're listed in system preferences limit, down the bottom. My yeah. guess is they limit the privileges that a kernel extension can yeah, have. They've definitely changed that model for we sure. Typically, <clears throat> which is so. I'm surprised no one asked in my Schmookon uh, presentation though. Like, what about Apple and access to firmware and hardware and the supply chain? looks very different as we described sure. it right you've got intel that makes the chip available with some you know firmware and some 
uh, data sheets and, and toolkits that the uh, Dell wants to include in their latest laptop, but Dell also then has to get some kind of UEFI BIOS. Maybe they get that from AMI Phoenix or Insider or whatever, right? And then they've got other manufacturers. You mentioned, someone mentioned Realtek, right? Maybe Realtek has a driver. They have to build that in and have the firmware to enable that hardware, right? They get their storage thing from wherever. Firmware has to enable this hardware. And so they've got all this supply chain kind of issues. In Apple's case, uh, so like in that case, it would be like Intel to AMI, AMI to Dell or Intel to both of them at the same time, and, and it would trickle down because Intel wants to put their chip in as many different manufacturer uh, PC servers and laptops as possible. With Apple, it goes from AMD to Apple. Yep. And Apple controls everything. I mean, other than what, like AMD, AMD has some control, right? But they're passing it directly to Apple and Apple only has to care about Apple. Apple's not licensing their chips or software or firmware to other people to run on their hardware or conglomeration of hardware. It runs on Apple hardware and Apple hardware is going to be this. And therefore we're going to lock things down. But in that case, you just, you have to trust Apple. And... If I can't load a kernel extension and I can't pull a dump of the spy flash or get access to this hardware, like I really have to trust Apple. I have to trust Apple more than I trust other providers. Other providers, if I can pull a spy flash dump, I can kind of see like what we pulled 15,000 of them mm-hmm. and talked about it in my talk, right? So I can kind of keep tabs as to what they're doing. With Apple, I got to trust them. I, I believe you have to trust them more. Because I they don't give me access, and and that's where I take issue with the, the walled garden. It's a double edged sword, right? Yeah, might be less players involved, but that puts trust in more than one vendor. So if and I Apple, think, I think they, they also have the, the illusion of, a little less secure by default because they have a closed ecosystem. Therefore, they feel like they control and and thus have a more secured by default. Mm-hmm. Uh, stance, which I, I disagree with. I don't think they've had to play the game that Microsoft's had to play over the several decades. Their secure by default is less secure than than I would like to see. I think they could do a better job. And I think they're, they're getting there and they're starting to see some of that with a lot of the Mac malware out there now. Yeah, but also to, almost to your point too, Tyler, if I find a flaw in Apple M1, I can own every single Apple M1 because they're the same. If I find a flaw like in Intel Boot Guard or something or, or UEFI, it might exist in Dell, but not HP. It might, it's not as ubiquitous, right? Because it's right. going to depend on the OEM implementation. An Apple vulnerability in Apple's ecosystem is a vulnerability in Apple's ecosystem for that particular version of their chip, right? Yep. So. And and with the cross compatibility of iPhone, iPad, and yep. you know, Mac OS, that can also extend greater than just a single desktop or laptop. It or single model. Yep. Entire, yeah, ex- yeah, extends the entire ecosystem because they share those libraries. Yep. Um, so someone created Santa for Linux. So basically, a way to auth- authorize binaries on Linux the same way that Google created Santa to authorize binaries on macOS, which I thought was pretty cool. Bless you. Thank you. That's is interesting. That right? um, the, so the link to the GitHub is in there. Um, 
they, they kind of dub it as a proof of concept. I thought it was kind of neat from like a supply chain kind of thing. Like I'm going to specifically, I'm going to give myself an ability to whitelist. Um, and um, so they call allow list and block list is the, the terminology yep. uh, in a configuration file that they allow. Um, and it goes by hash of that particular binary, which is a lot of work. Again, it's kind of like, like little snitch, I think is really a great kind of concept that you can apply to supply, like, should I allow this program to run on my system or not? And what connections should I either allow or be alerted on that this makes? And we were talking earlier on internal call. When I get software that I incorporate in my own software, why should that software reach out to the internet? We've talked about this on, on shows in the past. That's a really good indicator that you've got something that may have a supply chain vulner a vulnerability somewhere in the supply chain. And there's really good alternatives also to uh, to like Little Snitch for Mac OS. Uh, the Objective C guys have made quite the library of open source tool Objective nice. C.org/slash tools. They have you know everything from firewalls to uh, task explorers to like rootkit uh, or ransomware finders for Mac. So like they've done a really great job of opening that to the community and, and providing those for the Mac OS ecosystem. And those guys are about the best. That's nice. uh, Patrick Wardle, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Joff Fire wrote a cool article about uh, if you, so my take on, on Joff's article, which was also my story number 14, was if you're looking to get into like bug bounties or look at vulnerabilities in browsers such as Chrome and you, you want to get started on that and you need a, a place that explains to you the browser security architecture, look no further because Joff wrote the article. So thank you, Joff. <laughs> that was, awesome. yeah. And I like, it I heard. really well done. Like it's so yeah. simple to get through. And, it, it, and he summar Joff summarized it really well. And I've I've like learned snippets yeah. from people. Like I've heard a snippet here. I've read an article here. I've talked to a researcher who found <clears throat> V8 vulnerabilities, then presented at Black Hat and explained it to me there. So I've got like little snippets of knowledge. And snippets of knowledge don't get you to the point where you want to start understanding and or finding vulnerabilities in Chrome. This article lays out the foundation like all in one fell swoop, which is nice. Nice. Um, Shall we wrap it up? The my story number eleven null dereferences in the Linux kernel. <laughs> technical details aside, and the technical details are extremely deep in this particular article. I believe this was uh, Google Project Zero. It says this blog provides an exploit technique demonstrating that treating these bugs as universally innocuous often leads to faulty evaluations of their relevance to security. I was like, wow. I want to print out that quote and put it on the wall in my office. That's how well written and spot on that one sentence in this post is. Who wrote that at Google? Who's the author? Seth Jenkins. Thank you. I mean, amazing. I don't want to take away from the rest of the post. But when I got to that sentence, I'm like, man, that applies to so many other similar things, not oh. just null dereferences but, in the Linux kernel. But ignorance is bliss. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's essentially saying, yes, 
Yes, John, that's what he's saying, right? Stick my head in the sand is the best defense. <laughs> Doesn't mean they go away, but at least I don't have to worry about it. Right. Mm -hmm. True. Oh, so many of the things we talked about, even just this week, fall into that category. <laughs> um, my story number 10, I thought was amazing because I love this quote as well. Not much effort is needed to turn a full exploit chain for local privilege escalation into one that is able to escape containers as well. So think about that, Oof. everyone that uses containers out there. It's probably still a lot of people that containers are still a process that's running on top of a Linux kernel and privilege escalation is totally on the table for that. Like container does not absolve you from paying attention to local privilege escalation. No. And I think, Josh, back to your, your previous statement, right? If I ignore it, it doesn't exist. If I treat privilege escalation as, oh, well, someone needs to get access to the box, so therefore privilege escalation doesn't mean anything, that's completely false. Container escapes, and, so, and then this article goes into how they took a privilege escalation vulnerability that was not applicable to containers and made it applicable to containers. Um, this came from CrowdStrike, actually. Um, and it was an amazing, amazing post. Also, manage engine CVE 2022-47966 was a technical deep dive. This was Java XSLT shenanigans. Um, reference validation is performed before signature validation. Reference validation is performed before signature validation, allowing for the execution of malicious XSLT transforms. Really cool article from the Horizon 3 AI guys who... Tyler and I walked past their booth. I'm like, oh, they do really cool security research. And we, we never got back to them because we, we drank a lot of whiskey. Um, but <laughs> we need to bring them on the show. Yeah. The, they're really they, smart people. They're, oh, my God. Their research is amazing. And this, this was one uh, said example. And I think that, that was it in terms of stuff that I wrote up. My story number one is something you should also read. Jason Haddock's. Uh, who we've had on the show in the past and is awesome, had a Twitter thread that analyzed the breaches that have happened in 2022 and things they could have done to prevent those and lists at least 10 things that they could have done to prevent those. That, that was a really good thread, actually. Yeah. Jason, I mean, I love Jason. Jason, you're awesome. But that thread went through a ton of stuff that we've talked about this year. What CISOs need to be thinking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and to round it out, sorry, Larry, I know you want, you, you want to drive home because it's snowing, right? <laughs> um, it's all good. It's all good. How people use cell phones behind bars. I thought. They stick them in the rectum. <laughs> there was a sticker about that at ShmooCon. My wife gave me a roll of those for They said this Christmas. was in my butt? No, that said for rectal use only. Oh, we, I saw one of those stickers in the, the wireless CTF. And I was like, oh, when did we first had those? Was it a ShmooCon or a... That was a DEF CON, I think. Was it a DEF CON? We put them on everything. The ones that said for anal or for, for rectal use for only. Use only. There, there's one in the bathroom here in the studio, I think. Isn't there? Yeah, because we had like... Roll, the person... I Who got those? <sighs> well, you had the thousands of them. Th he had thousands of them. And 
was it CP or was it? Yeah, uh, it was some, like one of the awesome community members that it was probably, yeah. it, was probably yeah. it sounds like CP. And like we, we yeah. just put them on. I think every single one of our microphones said for anal use only on them at the time. Rectal. Do you remember that this Rectal. is not a camera stickers? Yep. That too. Yep. And uh, uh, the and to, had- toilet cams are for research purposes only. That's here in the <laughs> studio. And then the phone number on it goes to Caesar's Palace front desk. Oh, they hated us so bad. Oh, and what was the, what was the one on the that I took a picture of that I posted? This been in my butt. No, what did it say? That it didn't say. Nope. It says this was in my butt. Yes, I stand corrected. In any case, where was it going with that? Oh, prison. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to know? How people use cell phones behind bars, and I thought this was going to be more about how they hide and or deceive to be able to use a cell phone because i'm like well that that's kind of like a security related story but it was more about this article was way more about the like after they use the cell phone the benefits that like how they're using them in prison for um holy crap (laughs) no dude yeah that so they use them for all kinds of things to commit more crimes certainly one uh gambling scams cryptocurrency sure <laughs> but i was kind of and i think everyone would be surprised once you read this to go medical care isn't that great in a lot of prisons and so they use it to like webmd their wow. symptoms and go back to the infirmary and go like no i am really sick i need medical attention or to go one story was they used like youtube videos to figure out how to stitch someone's wound uh in in prison in like the story that was like dental floss with a lot of antiseptic and super glue and somehow not get an infection i was like amazed at that part hey toilet hooch has a high alcohol content okay? <laughs> it's just craziness Bruno. um uh, we don't, also, so we don't was, talk about Pruno. Yeah, it was more. But to highlight treatment, uh, like the way they were being treated uh, in prison to also call for help. Uh, if someone was in trouble and needed help and no one was paying attention, they would use the phone to, to call someone to get help. So it was more about that. Again, it kind of like blew my expectations out of the water of what I thought because I went into it going, well, this must be more about security than I thought. Mm. And it wasn't. Um, it was really kind of neat, uh, a neat article. It, but you also think about it, those of us that have children that go to school that take a cell phone with them, you thought about maybe 15 years ago when you were like, well, wh- what are schools going to do when everyone has a cell phone to bring them to school? Like, mm-hmm. it, Prisons are like the, uh, with, with cell phones, like how do you prevent cell phones in today's day and age in places like schools? or hospitals or prisons or things like that where you want to regulate these devices um, oh, I'd argue, in, in I'd, particular situations. I'd argue, that, I'd argue that schools and hospitals are a lot different than prisons. In the and way I wasn't drawing parallels. I was trying <laughs> in the way not, that they can regulate. Yeah. I was trying not to draw any I, I parallels totally, between the <laughs> yeah, three. Oh, I know where you were going. Right? Other than you would have different guidelines policies and rules to yeah. govern bringing technology devices and, into and, these different environments and, and authority to enforce said rules. correct correct yep. and how well, the just FCC how isn't coming like, down you're on whatever your policy is with and whether it's 
everyone can bring a cell phone wherever they want, or it's no one can have a cell phone or anyone in between. How do you enforce any of that, right? I mean, obviously, if you don't have any guidelines, everyone's going to bring a cell phone. And I went to a comedy show and I had to put my cell phone in an RF shielding bag and seal it. Hmm. And at the end of the show, they put it in this magnet thing and they like whack it with a mallet and it pops open. And of course, the hacker in me is like, so how can I bring something in that could get this? But you go through a metal detector when you go through the thing. So like you can only hold the bag with your phone and then they don't watches went in there too, Josh. Everyone, you had to hold up both wrists and there was a separate checkpoint after you put your devices in the bag that checked for watches. I went to because that was my thinking too, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah. There was a check for that. I'm like, "Oh, I would just like bring a hammer or something." But there was also like a metal detector, but you had to have some kind of magnet to unlock this particular bag. And I was like, "How would I bring Dude. a magnet if I'm going through a metal detector?" Like, I'm, I mean, my brain was just racing. I, I, I know where you put it in your shoe. You put number your, one, you put it in your butt. <clears throat> uh, put it in. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, that's dedication, Larry. That's hey, you know. That's prison level. You have dedication. a very large belt buckle with the magnets on the back of it. You use the belt buckle as the hammer, and you're you're good. You also, by the way, I mean, I also went to repercussions a for getting caught. Like comedy shows are pretty expensive, man. <laughs> so like you run that risk that if you fail, you're out, and you're out a couple hundred dollars, and your spouse is friggin' pissed that you were trying to hack your way. I went to the courthouse. I went to the courthouse and they took our, they said, you can't bring your cell phone inside to go put it in my car. And this was for a traffic ticket, but I, I, I had to yep, go to the courthouse. Okay. Yep. So I had to put the cell phone in the car and I didn't have my watch with me because I put it in the car. Somebody else ha- had put their cell phone in the car, but had their watch and was talking on the watch. The bailiffs were walking by. I didn't say anything. I'm like, I had to put my friggin' cell phone in the car. What the hell? Yep. And they're like, I don't know. Okay. Thank you. So security comedy, comedy show security is better than courthouse security is what yep, we established. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. That's interesting. On that Terrifying. note, on that note, shall we wrap? Closing. I thought you had a closing thought. No. I thought you had something. Out. Okay. Well, Lindsay, thank Lo- you. Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching this edition of Paul Security Weekly. Larry, take us out. Over and out of here.